Chapter 22 Expert Intuition When Can We Trust It? Professional controversies bring out the worst in academics. Scientific journals occasionally publish exchanges, often beginning with someone's critique of another's research, followed by a reply and a rejoinder. I have always thought that these exchanges are a waste of time, especially when the original critique is sharply worded. The reply and the rejoinder are often exercises in what I have called sarcasm for beginners and advanced sarcasm. The replies rarely concede anything to a biting critique, and it is almost unheard of for a rejoinder to admit that the original critique was misguided or erroneous in any way. On a few occasions, I have responded to criticisms that I thought were grossly misleading because a failure to respond can be interpreted as conceding error, but I have never found the hostile exchanges instructive. In search of another way to deal with disagreements, I have engaged in a few adversarial collaborations in which scholars who disagree on the science agree to write a jointly authored paper on their differences and sometimes conduct research together. In especially tense situations, the research is moderated by an arbiter. My most satisfying and productive adversarial collaboration was with Gary Klein, the intellectual leader of an association of scholars and practitioners who do not like the kind of work I do. They call themselves Students of Naturalistic Decision-Making, or NDM, and mostly work in organizations where they often study how experts work. The NDMers adamantly reject the focus on biases in the heuristics and biases approach. They criticize this model as overly concerned with failures and driven by artificial experiments rather than by the study of real people doing things that matter. They are deeply skeptical about the value of using rigid algorithms to replace human judgment, and Paul Meal is not among their heroes. Gary Klein has eloquently articulated this position over many years. This is hardly the basis for a beautiful friendship, but there is more to the story. I had never believed that intuition is always misguided. I had also been a fan of Klein's studies of expertise in firefighters since I first saw a draft of a paper he wrote in the 1970s and was impressed by his book, Sources of Power, much of which analyzes how experienced professionals develop intuitive skills. I invited him to join in an effort to map the boundary that separates the marvels of intuition from its flaws. He was intrigued by the idea, and we went ahead with the project, with no certainty that it would succeed. We set out to answer a specific question. When can you trust an experienced professional who claims to have an intuition? It was obvious that Klein would be more disposed to be trusting, and I would be more skeptical. But could we agree on principles for answering the general question? Over seven or eight years, we had many discussions, resolved many disagreements, almost blew up more than once, wrote many drafts, became friends, and eventually published a joint article with a title that tells the story. Conditions for Intuitive Expertise, 
a failure to disagree. Indeed, we did not encounter real issues on which we disagreed, but we did not really agree. Marvels and Flaws Malcolm Gladwell's bestseller, Blink, appeared while Klein and I were working on the project, and it was reassuring to find ourselves in agreement about it. Gladwell's book opens with the memorable story of art experts faced with an object that is described as a magnificent example of a kouros, a sculpture of a striding boy. Several of the experts had strong, visceral reactions. They felt in their gut that the statue was a fake, but were not able to articulate what it was about it that made them uneasy. Everyone who read the book, millions did, remembers that story as a triumph of intuition. The experts agreed that they knew the sculpture was a fake without knowing how they knew, the very definition of intuition. The story appears to imply that a systematic search for the cue that guided the experts would have failed. But Klein and I both rejected that conclusion. From our point of view, such an inquiry was needed, and if it had been conducted properly, which Klein knows how to do, it would probably have succeeded. Although many readers of the Kouros example were surely drawn to an almost magical view of expert intuition, Gladwell himself does not hold that position. In a later chapter, he describes a massive failure of intuition. Americans elected President Harding, whose only qualification for the position was that he perfectly looked the part. Square-jawed and tall, he was the perfect image of a strong and decisive leader. People voted for someone who looked strong and decisive without any other reason to believe that he was. An intuitive prediction of how Harding would perform as president arose from substituting one question for another. A reader of this book should expect such an intuition to be held with confidence. Intuition as Recognition The early experiences that shaped Klein's views of intuition were starkly different from mine. My thinking was formed by observing the illusion of validity in myself and by reading Paul Meal's demonstrations of the inferiority of clinical prediction. In contrast, Klein's views were shaped by his early studies of fireground commanders, the leaders of firefighting teams. He followed them as they fought fires and later interviewed the leader about his thoughts as he made decisions. As Klein described it in our joint article, he and his collaborators investigated how the commanders could make good decisions without comparing options. The initial hypothesis was that commanders would restrict their analysis to only a pair of options, but that hypothesis proved to be incorrect. In fact, the commanders usually generated only a single option and that was all they needed. They could draw on the repertoire of patterns that they had compiled during more than a decade of both real and virtual experience to identify a plausible option, which they considered first. They evaluated this option by mentally simulating it to see if it would work in the situation they were facing. If the course of action they were considering seemed appropriate, they would implement it. 
If it had shortcomings, they would modify it. If they could not easily modify it, they would turn to the next most plausible option and run through the same procedure until an acceptable course of action was found. Klein elaborated this description into a theory of decision-making that he called the Recognition Primed Decision Model, RPD, which applies to firefighters but also describes expertise in other domains, including chess. The process involves both System 1 and System 2. In the first phase, a tentative plan comes to mind by an automatic function of associative memory, System 1. The next phase is a deliberate process in which the plan is mentally simulated to check if it will work, an operation of System 2. The model of intuitive decision-making as pattern recognition develops ideas presented some time ago by Herbert Simon, perhaps the only scholar who is recognized and admired as a hero and founding figure by all the competing clans and tribes in the study of decision-making. I quoted Herbert Simon's definition of intuition in the introduction, but it will make more sense when I repeat it now. The situation has provided a cue. This cue has given the expert access to information stored in memory, and the information provides the answer. Intuition is nothing more and nothing less than recognition. This strong statement reduces the apparent magic of intuition to the everyday experience of memory. We marvel at the story of the firefighter who has a sudden urge to escape a burning house just before it collapses because the firefighter knows the danger intuitively, without knowing how he knows. However, we also do not know how we immediately know that a person we see as we enter a room is our friend Peter. The moral of Simon's remark is that the mystery of knowing without knowing is not a distinctive feature of intuition. It is the norm of mental life. Acquiring Skill How does the information that supports intuition get stored in memory? Certain types of intuitions are acquired very quickly. We have inherited from our ancestors a great facility to learn when to be afraid. Indeed, one experience is often sufficient to establish a long-term aversion and fear. Many of us have had the visceral memory of a single dubious dish that still leaves us vaguely reluctant to return to our restaurant. All of us tense up when we approach a spot in which an unpleasant event occurred, even when there is no reason to expect it to happen again. For me, one such place is the ramp leading to the San Francisco airport, where years ago a driver in the throes of road rage followed me from the freeway, rolled down his window, and hurled obscenities at me. I never knew what caused his hatred, but I remember his voice whenever I reached that point on my way to the airport. My memory of the airport incident is conscious, and it fully explains the emotion that comes with it. On many occasions, however, you may feel uneasy in a particular place or when someone uses a particular turn of phrase without having a conscious memory of the triggering event. In hindsight, 
You will label that unease an intuition if it is followed by a bad experience. This mode of emotional learning is closely related to what happened in Pavlov's famous conditioning experiments in which dogs learned to recognize the sound of the bell as a signal that food was coming. What Pavlov's dogs learned can be described as a learned hope. Learned fears are even more easily acquired. Fear can also be learned, quite easily in fact, by words rather than by experience. The fireman who had the sixth sense of danger had certainly had many occasions to discuss and think about types of fires he was not involved in, and to rehearse in his mind what the cues might be and how he should react. As I remember from experience, a young platoon commander with no experience of combat will tense up while leading troops through a narrowing ravine, because he was taught to identify the terrain as favoring an ambush. Little repetition is needed for learning. Emotional learning may be quick, but what we consider as expertise usually takes a long time to develop. The acquisition of expertise in complex tasks, such as high-level chess, professional basketball, or firefighting, is intricate and slow, because expertise in a domain is not a single skill, but rather a large collection of mini-skills. Chess is a good example. An expert player can understand a complex position at a glance, but it takes years to develop that level of ability. Studies of chess masters have shown that at least 10,000 hours of dedicated practice, about six years of playing chess five hours a day, are required to attain the highest levels of performance. During those hours of intense concentration, a serious chess player becomes familiar with thousands of configurations, each consisting of an arrangement of related pieces that can threaten or defend each other. Learning high-level chess can be compared to learning to read. A first grader works hard at recognizing individual letters and assembling them into syllables and words, but a good adult reader perceives entire clauses. An expert reader has also acquired the ability to assemble familiar elements in a new pattern and can quickly recognize and correctly pronounce a word that she has never seen before. In chess, Recurrent patterns of interacting pieces play the role of letters, and a chess position is a long word or a sentence. A skilled reader who sees it for the first time will be able to read the opening stanza of Lewis Carroll's Jabberwocky with perfect rhythm and intonation, as well as pleasure. "'Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe, all mimsy were the borough groves, and the mome raths outgrabe. Acquiring expertise in chess is harder and slower than learning to read because there are many more letters in the alphabet of chess and because the words consist of many letters. After thousands of hours of practice, however, chess masters are able to read a chess situation at a glance. The few moves that come to their mind are almost always strong and sometimes creative. 
They can deal with a word they have never encountered, and they can find a new way to interpret a familiar one. The Environment of Skill Klein and I quickly found that we agreed both on the nature of intuitive skill and on how it is acquired. We still needed to agree on our key question. When can you trust a self-confident professional who claims to have an intuition? We eventually concluded that our disagreement was due in part to the fact that we had different experts in mind. Klein had spent much time with the fireground commanders, clinical nurses, and other professionals who have real expertise. I have spent more time thinking about clinicians, stock pickers, and political scientists trying to make unsupportable long-term forecasts. Not surprisingly, his default attitude was trust and respect. Mine was skepticism. He was more willing to trust experts who claim an intuition because, as he told me, true experts know the limits of their knowledge. I argued that there are many pseudo-experts who have no idea that they do not know what they are doing, the illusion of validity, and that as a general proposition, subjective confidence is commonly too high and often uninformative. Earlier, I traced people's confidence in a belief to two related impressions, cognitive ease and coherence. We are confident when the story we tell ourselves comes easily to mind, with no contradiction and no competing scenario. But ease and coherence do not guarantee that a belief held with confidence is true. The associative machine is set to suppress doubt and to evoke ideas and information that are compatible with the currently dominant story. A mind that follows... What you see is all there is will achieve high confidence much too easily by ignoring what it does not know. It is, therefore, not surprising that many of us are prone to have high confidence in unfounded intuitions. Klein and I eventually agreed on an important principle. The confidence that people have in their intuitions is not a reliable guide to their validity. In other words, do not trust anyone, including yourself, to tell you how much you should trust their judgment. If subjective confidence is not to be trusted, how can we evaluate the probable validity of an intuitive judgment? When do judgments reflect true expertise? When do they display an illusion of validity? The answer comes from the two basic conditions for acquiring a skill an environment that is sufficiently regular to be predictable, an opportunity to learn these regularities through prolonged practice. When both these conditions are satisfied, intuitions are likely to be skilled. Chess is an extreme example of a regular environment, but bridge and poker also provide robust statistical regularities that can support skill. Physicians, nurses, athletes, and firefighters also face complex but fundamentally orderly situations. 
The accurate intuitions that Gary Klein has described are due to highly valid cues that the expert's System 1 has learned to use, even if System 2 has not learned to name them. In contrast, stock pickers and political scientists who make long-term forecasts operate in a zero-validity environment. Their failures reflect the basic unpredictability of the events that they try to forecast. Some environments are worse than irregular. Robin Hogarth described wicked environments in which professionals are likely to learn the wrong lessons from experience. He borrows from Lewis Thomas the example of a physician in the early 20th century who often had intuitions about patients who were about to develop typhoid. Unfortunately, he tested his hunch by palpating the patient's tongue without washing his hands between patients. When patient after patient became ill, the physician developed a sense of clinical infallibility. His predictions were accurate, but not because he was exercising professional intuition. Meal's clinicians were not inept, and their failure was not due to lack of talent. They performed poorly because they were assigned tasks that did not have a simple solution. The clinician's predicament was less extreme than the zero-validity environment of long-term political forecasting, but they operated in low-validity situations that did not allow high accuracy. We know this to be the case because the best statistical algorithms, although more accurate than human judges, were never very accurate. Indeed, the studies by Meal and his followers never produced a smoking gun demonstration, a case in which clinicians completely missed a highly valid cue that the algorithm detected. An extreme failure of this kind is unlikely because human learning is normally efficient. If a strong predictive cue exists, human observers will find it, given a decent opportunity to do so. Statistical algorithms greatly outdo humans in noisy environments for two reasons. They are more likely than human judges to detect weakly valid cues and much more likely to maintain a modest level of accuracy by using such cues consistently. It is wrong to blame anyone for failing to forecast accurately in an unpredictable world. However, it seems fair to blame professionals for believing they can succeed in an impossible task. Claims for correct intuitions in an unpredictable situation are self-delusional at best, sometimes worse. In the absence of valid cues, intuitive hits are due either to luck or to lies. If you find this conclusion surprising, you still have a lingering belief that intuition is magic. Remember this rule. Intuition cannot be trusted in the absence of stable regularities in the environment. Feedback and Practice some regularities in the environment are easier to discover and apply than others. Think of how you developed your style of using the brakes on your car. As you were mastering the skill of taking curves, you gradually learned when to let go of the accelerator and when and how hard to use the brakes. 
Curves differ, and the variability you experienced while learning ensures that you are now ready to break at the right time and strength for any curve you encounter. The conditions for learning this skill are ideal because you receive immediate and unambiguous feedback every time you go around a bend. The mild reward of a comfortable turn or the mild punishment of some difficulty in handling the car if you brake either too hard or not quite hard enough. The situations that face a harbor pilot maneuvering large ships are no less regular, but skill is much more difficult to acquire by sheer experience because of the long delay between actions and their noticeable outcomes. Whether professionals have a chance to develop intuitive expertise depends essentially on the quality and speed of feedback, as well as on sufficient opportunity to practice. Expertise is not a single skill. It is a collection of skills, and the same professional may be highly expert in some of the tasks in her domain while remaining a novice in others. By the time chess players become experts, they have seen everything, or almost everything, but chess is an exception in this regard. Surgeons can be much more proficient in some operations than in others. Furthermore, some aspects of any professional's tasks are much easier to learn than others. Psychotherapists have many opportunities to observe the immediate reactions of patients to what they say. The feedback enables them to develop the intuitive skill to find words and the tone that will calm anger, forge confidence, or focus the patient's attention. On the other hand, Therapists do not have a chance to identify which general treatment approach is most suitable for different patients. The feedback they receive from their patients' long-term outcomes is sparse, delayed, or usually non-existent, and, in any case, too ambiguous to support learning from experience. Among medical specialties, anesthesiologists benefit from good feedback, because the effects of their actions are likely to be quickly evident. In contrast, radiologists obtain little information about the accuracy of the diagnoses they make and about the pathologies they fail to detect. Anesthesiologists are therefore in a better position to develop useful intuitive skills. If an anesthesiologist says, I have a feeling something is wrong, Everyone in the operating room should be prepared for an emergency. Here again, as in the case of subjective confidence, the experts may not know the limits of their expertise. An experienced psychotherapist knows that she is skilled in working out what is going on in her patient's mind and that she has good intuitions about what the patient will say next. It is tempting for her to conclude that she can also anticipate how well the patient will do next year, but this conclusion is not equally justified. Short-term anticipation and long-term forecasting are different tasks, and the therapist has had adequate opportunity to learn one, but not the other. Similarly, a financial expert may have skills in many aspects of his trade, but not in picking stocks. And an expert in the Middle East knows many things, but not the future. 
the clinical psychologist, the stock picker, and the pundit do have intuitive skills in some of their tasks, but they have not learned to identify the situations and the tasks in which intuition will betray them. The unrecognized limits of professional skill help explain why experts are often overconfident. Evaluating Validity At the end of our journey, Gary Klein and I agreed on a general answer to our initial question. When can you trust an experienced professional who claims to have an intuition? Our conclusion was that for the most part, it is possible to distinguish intuitions that are likely to be valid from those that are likely to be bogus. As in the judgment of whether a work of art is genuine or a fake, you will usually do better by focusing on its provenance than by looking at the piece itself. If the environment is sufficiently regular, and if the judge has had a chance to learn its regularities, the associative machinery will recognize situations and generate quick and accurate predictions and decisions. You can trust someone's intuitions if these conditions are met. Unfortunately, associative memory also generates subjectively compelling intuitions that are false. Anyone who has watched the chess progress of a talented youngster knows well that skill does not become perfect all at once, and that on the way to near perfection, some mistakes are made with great confidence. When evaluating expert intuition, you should always consider whether there was an adequate opportunity to learn the cues, even in a regular environment. In a less regular or low-validity environment, the heuristics of judgment are invoked. System 1 is often able to produce quick answers to difficult questions by substitution, creating coherence where there is none. The question that is answered is not the one that was intended, but the answer is produced quickly and may be sufficiently plausible to pass the lax and lenient review of System 2. You may want to forecast the commercial future of a company, for example, and believe that this is what you are judging, while in fact your evaluation is dominated by your impressions of the energy and competence of its current executives. Because substitution occurs automatically, you often do not know the origin of a judgment that you, your system too, endorse and adopt. If it is the only one that comes to mind, it may be subjectively undistinguishable from valid judgments that you make with expert confidence. This is why subjective confidence is not a good diagnostic of accuracy. Judgments that answer the wrong question can also be made with high confidence. You may be asking, why did Gary Klein and I come up immediately with the idea of evaluating an expert's intuition by assessing the regularity of the environment and the expert's learning history, mostly setting aside the expert's confidence? And what did we think the answer could be? These are good questions, because the contours of the solution were apparent from the beginning. We knew from the outset that fireground commanders and pediatric nurses would end up on one side of the boundary of valid intuitions, and that the specialties studied by Neil would be on the other, 
along with stock pickers and pundits. It is difficult to reconstruct what it was that took us years, long hours of discussion, endless exchanges of drafts, and hundreds of emails negotiating over words, and more than once almost giving up. But this is what always happens when a project ends reasonably well. Once you understand the main conclusion, it seems it was always obvious. As the title of our article suggests, Klein and I disagreed less than we had expected and accepted joint solutions of almost all the substantive issues that were raised. However, we also found that our early differences were more than an intellectual disagreement. We had different attitudes, emotions, and tastes, and those changed remarkably little over the years. This is most obvious in the facts that we find amusing and interesting. Klein still winces when the word bias is mentioned, and he still enjoys stories in which algorithms or formal procedures lead to obviously absurd decisions. I tend to view the occasional failures of algorithms as opportunities to improve them. On the other hand, I find more pleasure than Klein does in the comeuppance of arrogant experts who claim intuitive powers in zero-validity situations. In the long run, however, finding as much intellectual agreement as we did is surely more important than the persistent emotional differences that remained. Speaking of Expert Intuition How much expertise does she have in this particular task? How much practice has she had? Does he really believe that the environment of startups is sufficiently regular to justify an intuition that goes against the base rates? She is very confident in her decision, but subjective confidence is a poor index of the accuracy of a judgment. Did he really have an opportunity to learn? How quick and how clear was the feedback he received on his judgments? Chapter 23 The Outside View A few years after my collaboration with Amos began, I convinced some of the officials in the Israeli Ministry of Education of the need for a curriculum to teach judgment and decision-making in high schools. The team that I assembled to design the curriculum and write a textbook for it included several experienced teachers, some of my psychology students, and Seymour Fox, then dean of the Hebrew University's School of Education, who was an expert in curriculum development. After meeting every Friday afternoon for about a year, we had constructed a detailed outline of the syllabus, had written a couple of chapters, and had run a few sample lessons in the classroom. We all felt that we had made good progress. One day, as we were discussing procedures for estimating uncertain quantities, the idea of conducting an exercise occurred to me. I asked everyone to write down an estimate of how long it would take us to submit a finished draft of the textbook to the Ministry of Education. I was following a procedure that we already planned to incorporate into our curriculum. The proper way to elicit information from a group is not by starting with a public discussion, 
but by confidentially collecting each person's judgment. This procedure makes better use of the knowledge available to members of the group than the common practice of open discussion. I collected the estimates and jotted the results on the blackboard. They were narrowly centered around two years. The low end was one and a half, the high end two and a half years. Then I had another idea. I turned to Seymour, our curriculum expert, and asked whether he could think of other teams similar to ours that had developed a curriculum from scratch. This was a time when several pedagogical innovations like new math had been introduced, and Seymour said he could think of quite a few. I then asked whether he knew the history of these teams in some detail, and it turned out that he was familiar with several. I asked him to think of these teams when they had made as much progress as we had. How long, from that point, did it take them to finish their textbook projects? He fell silent. When he finally spoke, it seemed to me that he was blushing, embarrassed by his own answer. You know, I never realized this before, but in fact, not all the teams at a stage comparable to ours ever did complete their task. A substantial fraction of the teams ended up failing to finish the job. This was worrisome. We had never considered the possibility that we might fail. My anxiety rising, I asked how large he estimated that fraction was. About 40%, he answered. By now, a pall of gloom was falling over the room. The next question was obvious. Those who finished, I asked, how long did it take them? I cannot think of any group that finished in less than seven years, he replied, nor any that took more than ten. I grasped at a straw. When you compare our skills and resources to those of the other groups, how good are we? How would you rank us in comparison with these teams? Seymour did not hesitate long this time. We're below average, he said but not by much. This came as a complete surprise to all of us, including Seymour, whose prior estimate had been well within the optimistic consensus of the group. Until I prompted him, there was no connection in his mind between his knowledge of the history of other teams and his forecast of our future. Our state of mind, when we heard Seymour, is not well described by stating what we knew, Surely all of us knew that a minimum of seven years and a 40% chance of failure was a more plausible forecast of the fate of our project than the numbers we had written on our slips of paper a few minutes earlier. But we did not acknowledge what we knew. The new forecast still seemed unreal because we could not imagine how it could take so long to finish a project that looked so manageable. No crystal ball was available to tell us the strange sequence of unlikely events that were in our future. All we could see was a reasonable plan that should produce a book in about two years, conflicting with statistics indicating that other teams had failed or had taken an absurdly long time to complete their mission. What we had heard was base rate information, from which we should have inferred a causal story. If so many teams failed, and if those that succeeded took so long, 
Writing a curriculum was surely much harder than we had thought. But such an inference would have conflicted with our direct experience of the good progress we'd been making. The statistics that Seymour provided were treated as base rates normally are, noted and promptly set aside. We should have quit that day. None of us was willing to invest six more years of work in a project with a 40% chance of failure. Although we must have sensed that persevering was not reasonable, the warning did not provide an immediately compelling reason to quit. After a few minutes of desultory debate, we gathered ourselves together and carried on as if nothing had happened. The book was eventually completed eight years later. By that time, I was no longer living in Israel and had long since ceased to be part of the team, which completed the task after many unpredictable vicissitudes. The initial enthusiasm for the idea in the Ministry of Education had waned by the time the text was delivered, and it was never used. This embarrassing episode remains one of the most instructive experiences of my professional life. I eventually learned three lessons from it. The first was immediately apparent. I had stumbled onto a distinction between two profoundly different approaches to forecasting, which Amos and I later labeled the inside view and the outside view. The second lesson was that our initial forecasts of about two years for the completion of the project exhibited a planning fallacy. Our estimates were closer to a best-case scenario than to a realistic assessment. I was slower to accept the third lesson, which I call irrational perseverance, the folly we displayed that day in failing to abandon the project. Facing a choice, we gave up rationality rather than give up the enterprise. Drawn to the Inside View on that long-ago Friday, our curriculum expert made two judgments about the same problem and arrived at very different answers. The inside view is the one that all of us, including Seymour, spontaneously adopted to assess the future of our project. We focused on our specific circumstances and searched for evidence in our own experiences. We had a sketchy plan. We knew how many chapters we were going to write, and we had an idea of how long it had taken us to write the two that we had already done. The more cautious among us probably added a few months to their estimate as a margin of error. Extrapolating was a mistake. We were forecasting based on the information in front of us. What you see is all there is. But the chapters we wrote first were probably easier than the others, and our commitment to the project was probably then at its peak. But the main problem was that we failed to allow for what Donald Rumsfeld famously called the unknown unknowns. There was no way for us to foresee, that day, the succession of events that would cause the project to drag out for so long. The divorces, the illnesses, the crises of coordination with bureaucracies that delayed the work could not be anticipated. Such events not only caused the writing of chapters to slow down, 
They also produce long periods during which little or no progress is made at all. The same must have been true, of course, for the other teams that Seymour knew about. The members of those teams were also unable to imagine the events that would cause them to spend seven years to finish, or ultimately fail to finish, a project that they evidently had thought was very feasible. Like us, they did not know the odds they were facing. There are many ways for any plan to fail, and although most of them are too improbable to be anticipated, the likelihood that something will go wrong in a big project is high. The second question I asked Seymour directed his attention away from us and toward a class of similar cases. Seymour estimated the base rate of success in that reference class, 40% failure and 7 to 10 years for completion. His informal survey was surely not up to scientific standards of evidence, but it provided a reasonable basis for a baseline prediction. The prediction you make about a case if you know nothing except the category to which it belongs. As we saw earlier, the baseline prediction should be the anchor for further adjustments. If you are asked to guess the height of a woman about whom you know only that she lives in New York City, your baseline prediction is your best guess of the average height of women in the city. If you are now given case-specific information, for example, that the woman's son is the starting center of his high school basketball team, you will adjust your estimate away from the mean in the appropriate direction. Seymour's comparison of our team to others suggested that the forecast of our outcome was slightly worse than the baseline prediction, which was already grim. The spectacular accuracy of the outside-view forecast in our problem was surely a fluke and should not count as evidence for the validity of the outside view. The argument for the outside view should be made on general grounds. If the reference class is properly chosen, the outside view will give an indication of where the ballpark is, as it may suggest, as it did in our case that the inside view forecasts are not even close to it. For a psychologist, the discrepancy between Seymour's two judgments is striking. He had in his head all the knowledge required to estimate the statistics of an appropriate reference class, but he reached his initial estimate without ever using that knowledge. Seymour's forecast from his inside view was not an adjustment from the baseline prediction which had not come to his mind. It was based on the particular circumstances of our efforts. Like the participants in the Tom W. experiment, Seymour knew the relevant base rate, but did not think of applying it. Unlike Seymour, the rest of us did not have access to the outside view and could not have produced a reasonable baseline prediction. It is noteworthy, however, that we did not feel we needed information about other teams to make our guesses. My request for the outside view surprised all of us, including me. This is a common pattern. People who have information about an individual case rarely feel the need to know the statistics of the class to which the case belongs. When we were eventually exposed to the outside view, we collectively ignored it. We can recognize what happened to us, 
it is similar to the experiment that suggested the futility of teaching psychology. When they made predictions about individual cases about which they had a little information, a brief and bland interview, Nisbet and Borgida's students completely neglected the global results they had just learned. Pallid statistical information is routinely discarded when it is incompatible with one's personal impressions of a case. In the competition with the inside view, the outside view doesn't stand a chance. The preference for the inside view sometimes carries moral overtones. I once asked my cousin, a distinguished lawyer, a question about a reference class. What is the probability of the defendant winning in cases like this one? His sharp answer that every case is unique was accompanied by a look that made it clear he found my question inappropriate and superficial. A proud emphasis on the uniqueness of cases is also common in medicine, in spite of recent advances in evidence-based medicine that point the other way. Medical statistics and baseline predictions come up with increasing frequency in conversations between patients and physicians. However, the remaining ambivalence about the outside view in the medical profession is expressed in concerns about the impersonality of procedures that are guided by statistics and checklists. The Planning Fallacy In light of both the outside view forecast and the eventual outcome, the original estimates we made that Friday afternoon appear almost delusional. This should not come as a surprise. Overly optimistic forecasts of the outcome of projects are found everywhere. Amos and I coined the term planning fallacy to describe plans and forecasts that are unrealistically close to best-case scenarios, could be improved by consulting the statistics of similar cases. Examples of the planning fallacy abound in the experiences of individuals, governments, and businesses. The list of horror stories is endless. In July 1997, the proposed new Scottish Parliament building in Edinburgh was estimated to cost up to £40 million. By June 1999, the budget for the building was £109 million. In April 2000, legislators imposed a £195 million cap on costs. By November 2001, they demanded an estimate of final cost, which was set at £241 million. That estimated final cost rose twice in 2002, ending the year at £294.6 million. It rose three times more in 2003, reaching £375.8 million by June. The building was finally completed in 2004 at an ultimate cost of roughly £431 million. A 2005 study examined rail projects undertaken worldwide between 1969 and 1998. In more than 90% of the cases, the number of passengers projected to use the system was overestimated. 
Even though these passenger shortfalls were widely publicized, forecasts did not improve over those 30 years. On average, planners overestimated how many people would use the new rail projects by 106%, and the average cost overrun was 45%. As more evidence accumulated, the experts did not become more reliant on it. In 2002, a survey of American homeowners who had remodeled their kitchens found that, on average, they had expected the job to cost $18,658. In fact, they ended up paying an average of $38,769. The optimism of planners and decision-makers is not the only cause of overruns. Contractors of kitchen renovations and of weapons systems readily admit, though not to their clients, that they routinely make most of their profit in additions to the original plan. The failures of forecasting in these cases reflect the customer's inability to imagine how much their wishes will escalate over time. They ended up paying much more than they would if they had made a realistic plan and stuck to it. Errors in the initial budget are not always innocent. The authors of unrealistic plans are often driven by the desire to get the plan approved, whether by their superiors or by a client, supported by the knowledge that projects are rarely abandoned unfinished merely because of overruns in costs or completion times. In such cases, the greatest responsibility for avoiding the planning fallacy lies with the decision-makers who approve the plan. If they do not recognize the need for an outside view, they commit a planning fallacy. Mitigating the planning fallacy The diagnosis of and the remedy for the planning fallacy have not changed since that Friday afternoon, but the implementation of the idea has come a long way. The renowned Danish planning expert, Bent Fluffierg, now at Oxford University, offered a forceful summary. The prevalent tendency to underweight or ignore distributional information is perhaps the major source of error in forecasting. Planners should therefore make every effort to frame the forecasting problem so as to facilitate utilizing all the distributional information that is available. This may be considered the single most important piece of advice regarding how to increase accuracy in forecasting through improved methods. Using such distributional information from other ventures similar to that being forecasted is called taking an outside view and is the cure to the planning fallacy. The treatment for the planning fallacy has now acquired a technical name, reference class forecasting, and Fluffier has applied it to transportation projects in several countries. The outside view is implemented by using a large database which provides information on both plans and outcomes for hundreds of projects all over the world and can be used to provide statistical information about the likely overruns of cost and time and about the likely underperformance of projects of different types. 
The forecasting method that Fluffpierre applies is similar to the practices recommended for overcoming base rate neglect. 1. Identify an appropriate reference class. Kitchen renovations, large railway projects, etc. 2. Obtain the statistics of the reference class in terms of cost per mile of railway or of the percentage by which expenditures exceeded budget. Use the statistics to generate a baseline prediction. 3. Use specific information about the case to adjust the baseline prediction if there are particular reasons to expect the optimistic bias to be more or less pronounced in this project than in others of the same type. Fluffpierre's analyses are intended to guide the authorities that commission public projects by providing the statistics of overruns in similar projects. Decision-makers need a realistic assessment of the costs and benefits of a proposal before making the final decision to approve it. They may also wish to estimate the budget reserve that they need in anticipation of overruns, although such precautions often become self-fulfilling prophecies. As one official told Fluffier, a budget reserve is to contractors as red meat is to lions, and they will devour it. Organizations face the challenge of controlling the tendency of executives competing for resources to present overly optimistic plans. A well-run organization will reward planners for precision execution and penalize them for failing to anticipate difficulties and for failing to allow for difficulties that they could not have anticipated, the unknown unknowns. Decisions and Errors That Friday afternoon occurred more than 30 years ago. I often thought about it and mentioned it in lectures several times each year. Some of my friends got bored with the story, but I kept drawing new lessons from it. Almost 15 years after I first reported on the planning fallacy with Amos, I returned to the topic with Dan Lovallo. Together we sketched a theory of decision-making in which the optimistic bias is a significant source of risk-taking. In the standard rational model of economics, people take risks because the odds are favorable. They accept some probability of a costly failure because the probability of success is sufficient. We proposed an alternative idea. When forecasting the outcomes of risky projects, executives too easily fall victim to the planning fallacy. In its grip, they make decisions based on delusional optimism rather than on a rational weighting of gains, losses, and probabilities. They overestimate benefits and underestimate costs. They spin scenarios of success while overlooking the potential for mistakes and miscalculations. As a result, they pursue initiatives that are unlikely to come in on budget or on time or to deliver the expected returns or even to be completed. In this view, People often, but not always, take on risky projects because they are overly optimistic about the odds they face. I will return to this idea several times in this book. It probably contributes to an explanation of why people litigate, why they start wars, and why they open small businesses.
Failing a Test For many years, I thought that the main point of the curriculum story was what I had learned about my friend Seymour, that his best guess about the future of our project was not informed by what he knew about similar projects. I came off quite well in my telling of the story, in which I had the role of clever questioner and astute psychologist. I only recently realized that I had actually played the roles of Chief Dunce, an inept leader. The project was my initiative, and it was therefore my responsibility to ensure that it made sense and that major problems were properly discussed by the team, but I failed that test. My problem was no longer the planning fallacy. I was cured of that fallacy as soon as I heard Seymour's statistical summary. If pressed, I would have said that our earlier estimates had been absurdly optimistic. If pressed further, I would have admitted that we had started the project on faulty premises and that we should at least consider seriously the option of declaring defeat and going home. But nobody pressed me, and there was no discussion. We tacitly agreed to go on without an explicit forecast of how long the effort would last. This was easy to do, because we had not made such a forecast to begin with. If we had had a reasonable baseline prediction when we started, we would not have gone into it. But we had already invested a great deal of effort, an instance of the sunk cost fallacy, which we will look at more closely in the next part of the book. It would have been embarrassing for us, especially for me, to give up at that point, and there seemed to be no immediate reason to do so. It is easier to change directions in a crisis but this was not a crisis, only some new facts about people we did not know. The outside view was much easier to ignore than bad news in our own effort. I can best describe our state as a form of lethargy, an unwillingness to think about what had happened, so we carried on. There was no further attempt at rational planning for the rest of the time I spent as a member of the team. A particularly troubling omission for a team dedicated to teaching rationality. I hope I am wiser today, and I have acquired a habit of looking for the outside view, but it will never be the natural thing to do. Speaking of the outside view. He's taking an inside view. He should forget about his own case and look for what happened in other cases. She's a victim of planning fallacy. She's assuming a best-case scenario, but there are too many different ways for the plan to fail, and she cannot foresee them all. Suppose you did not know a thing about this particular legal case, only that it involves a malpractice claim by an individual against a surgeon. What would be your baseline prediction? How many of these cases succeed in court? How many settle? What are the amounts? Is the case we are discussing stronger or weaker than similar claims? We are making an additional investment because we do not want to admit failure. This is an instance of the sunk cost fallacy. Chapter 24 The Engine of Capitalism the planning fallacy is only one of the manifestations of a pervasive optimistic bias. 
Most of us view the world as more benign than it really is, our own attributes as more favorable than they truly are, and the goals we adopt as more achievable than they are likely to be. We also tend to exaggerate our ability to forecast the future, which fosters optimistic overconfidence. In terms of its consequences for decisions, the optimistic bias may well be the most significant of the cognitive biases. Because optimistic bias can be both a blessing and a risk, you should be both happy and wary if you are temperamentally optimistic. Optimists Optimism is normal, but some fortunate people are more optimistic than the rest of us. If you are genetically endowed with an optimistic bias, you hardly need to be told that you are a lucky person. You already feel fortunate. An optimistic attitude is largely inherited, and it is part of a general disposition for well-being, which may also include a preference for seeing the bright side of everything. If you are allowed one wish for your child, seriously consider wishing him or her optimism. Optimists are normally cheerful and happy, and therefore popular. They are resilient in adapting to failures and hardships. Their chances of clinical depression are reduced. Their immune system is stronger. They take better care of their health. They feel healthier than others and are, in fact, likely to live longer. A study of people who exaggerate their expected lifespan beyond actuarial predictions showed that they worked longer hours, are more optimistic about their future outcome, are more likely to remarry after divorce, the classic triumph of hope over experience, and are more prone to bet on individual stocks. Of course, the blessings of optimism are offered only to individuals who are only mildly biased and who are able to accentuate the positive without losing track of reality. Optimistic individuals play a disproportionate role in shaping our lives. Their decisions make a difference. They are the inventors, the entrepreneurs, the political and military leaders, not average people. They got to where they are by seeking challenges and taking risks. They are talented, and they have been lucky, almost certainly luckier than they acknowledge. They are probably optimistic by temperament, a survey of founders of small businesses concluded that entrepreneurs are more sanguine than mid-level managers about life in general. Their experiences of success have confirmed their faith in their judgment and in their ability to control events. Their self-confidence is reinforced by the admiration of others. This reasoning leads to a hypothesis. The people who have the greatest influence on the lives of others are likely to be optimistic and overconfident and to take more risks than they realize. The evidence suggests that an optimistic bias plays a role, sometimes the dominant role, whenever individuals or institutions voluntarily take on significant risks. More often than not, risk-takers underestimate the odds they face and do invest sufficient effort to find out what the odds are. Because they misread the risks, optimistic entrepreneurs often believe they are prudent, even when they are not. Their confidence in their future success sustains a positive mood that helps them obtain resources from others, raise the morale of their employees, 
and enhance their prospects of prevailing. When action is needed, optimism, even of the mildly delusional variety, may be a good thing. Entrepreneurial Delusions The chances that a small business will survive for five years in the United States are about 35%. But the individuals who open such businesses do not believe that these statistics apply to them. A survey found that American entrepreneurs tend to believe they are in a promising line of business. Their average estimate of the chances of success for any business like yours was 60%, almost double the true value. The bias was more glaring when people assessed the odds of their own venture. Fully 81% of the entrepreneurs put their personal odds of success at 7 out of 10 or higher, and 33% said their chance of failing was zero. The direction of the bias is not surprising. If you interviewed someone who recently opened an Italian restaurant, you would not expect her to have underestimated her prospects for success or to have a poor view of her ability as a restaurateur. But you must wonder, would she still have invested money and time if she had made a reasonable effort to learn the odds? Or if she did learn the odds, 60% of new restaurants are out of business after three years. Paid attention to them? The idea of adopting the outside view probably didn't occur to her. One of the benefits of an optimistic temperament is that it encourages persistence in the face of obstacles. But persistence can be costly. An impressive series of studies by Thomas Osterbro sheds light on what happens when optimists receive bad news. He drew his data from the Canadian organization, the Inventors Assistance Program, which collects a small fee to provide inventors with an objective assessment of the commercial prospects of their idea. The evaluations rely on careful ratings of each invention on 37 criteria, including need for the product, cost of production, and estimated trend of demand. The analysts summarize their ratings by a letter grade, where D and E predict failure, a prediction made for over 70% of the inventions they review. The forecasts of failure are remarkably accurate. Only five of 411 projects that were given the lowest grade reached commercialization, and none was successful. Discouraging news led about half of the inventors to quit after receiving a grade that unequivocally predicted failure. However, 47% of them continued development efforts even after being told that their project was hopeless, and on average, these persistent or obstinate individuals doubled their initial losses before giving up. Significantly, persistence after discouraging advice was relatively common among inventors who had a high score on a personality measure of optimism, on which inventors generally scored higher than the general population. Overall, the return on private invention was small, lower than the return on private equity and on high-risk securities. More generally, the financial benefits of self-employment are mediocre, given the same qualifications 
people achieve higher average returns by selling their skills to employers than by setting out on their own. The evidence suggests that optimism is widespread, stubborn, and costly. Psychologists have confirmed that most people genuinely believe that they are superior to most others on most desirable traits. They are willing to bet small amounts of money on these beliefs in the laboratory. In the market, of course, beliefs in one's superiority have significant consequences. Leaders of large businesses sometimes make huge bets in expensive mergers and acquisitions, acting on the mistaken belief that they can manage the assets of another company better than its current owners do. The stock market commonly responds by downgrading the value of the acquiring firm, because experience has shown that efforts to integrate large firms fail more often than they succeed. The misguided acquisitions have been explained by a hubris hypothesis. The executives of the acquiring firm are simply less competent than they think they are. The economists Ulrich Malmendier and Jeffrey Tate identified optimistic CEOs by the amount of company stock that they owned personally, and observed that highly optimistic leaders took excessive risks. They assumed debt rather than issue equity, and were more likely than others to overpay for target companies and undertake value-destroying mergers. Remarkably, the stock of the acquiring company suffered substantially more in mergers if the CEO was overly optimistic by the author's measure. The stock market is apparently able to identify overconfident CEOs. This observation exonerates the CEOs from one accusation, even as it convicts them of another. The leaders of enterprises who make unsound bets do not do so because they are betting with other people's money. On the contrary, they take greater risks when they personally have more at stake. The damage caused by overconfident CEOs is compounded when the business press anoints them as celebrities. The evidence indicates that prestigious press awards to the CEO are costly to stockholders. The authors write: We find that firms with award-winning CEOs subsequently underperform. In terms both of stock and of operating performance, at the same time, CEO compensation increases. CEOs spend more time on activities outside the company, such as writing books and sitting on outside boards, and they are more likely to engage in earnings management. Many years ago, my wife and I were on vacation on Vancouver Island, looking for a place to stay. We found an attractive but deserted motel on a little traveled road in the middle of a forest. The owners were a charming young couple who needed little prompting to tell us their story. They had been school teachers in the province of Alberta. They had decided to change their life and used their life savings to buy this motel, which had been built a dozen years earlier. They told us without irony or self-consciousness that they had been able to buy it cheap. Because six or seven previous owners had failed to make a go of it, they also told us about plans to seek a loan to make the establishment more attractive by building a restaurant next to it. 
They felt no need to explain why they expected to succeed where six or seven others had failed. A common thread of boldness and optimism links business people from motel owners to superstar CEOs. The optimistic risk-taking of entrepreneurs surely contributes to the economic dynamism of a capitalistic society, even if most risk-takers end up disappointed. However, Marta Coelho of the London School of Economics has pointed out the difficult policy issues that arise when founders of small businesses ask the government to support them in decisions that are most likely to end badly. Should the government provide loans to would-be entrepreneurs who probably will bankrupt themselves in a few years? Many behavioral economists are comfortable with the libertarian paternalistic procedures that help people increase their savings rate beyond what they would do on their own. The question of whether and how governments should support small business does not have an equally satisfying answer. Competition Neglect It is tempting to explain entrepreneurial optimism by wishful thinking, but emotion is only part of the story. Cognitive biases play an important role, notably the System 1 feature, what you see is all there is. We focus on our goal, anchor our plan, and neglect relevant base rates, exposing ourselves to the planning fallacy. We focus on what we want to do and can do, neglecting the plans and skills of others. Both in explaining the past and in predicting the future, we focus on the causal role of skill and neglect the role of luck. We are therefore prone to an illusion of control. We focus on what we know and neglect what we do not know, which makes us overly confident in our beliefs. The observation that 90% of drivers believe they are better than average is a well-established psychological finding that has become part of the culture, and it often comes up as a prime example of a more general above-average effect. However, the interpretation of the finding has changed in recent years from self-aggrandizement to a cognitive bias. Consider these two questions. Are you a good driver? Are you better than average as a driver? The first question is easy, and the answer comes quickly. Most drivers say yes. The second question is much harder, and for most respondents, almost impossible to answer seriously and correctly, because it requires an assessment of the average quality of drivers. At this point in the book, it comes as no surprise that people respond to a difficult question by answering an easier one. They compare themselves to the average without ever thinking about the average. The evidence for the cognitive interpretation of the above-average effect is that when people are asked about a task they find difficult, for many of us this could be, are you better than average in starting conversations with strangers? they readily rate themselves as below average. The upshot is that people tend to be overly optimistic about their relative standing on any activity in which they do moderately well. I have had several occasions to ask founders and participants in innovative startups a question, 
To what extent will the outcome of your effort depend on what you do in your firm? This is evidently an easy question. The answer comes quickly, and in my small sample, it has never been less than 80%. Even when they are not sure they will succeed, these bold people think their fate is almost entirely in their own hands. They are surely wrong. The outcome of a startup depends as much on the achievements of its competitors and on changes in the market as on its own efforts. However, what you see is all there is plays its part, and entrepreneurs naturally focus on what they know best, their plans and actions, and the most immediate threats and opportunities, such as the availability of funding. They know less about their competitors and therefore find it natural to imagine a future in which the competition plays little part. Colin Kammerer and Dan Lovallo, who coined the concept of competition neglect, illustrated it with a quote from the then chairman of Disney Studios. Asked why so many expensive big-budget movies are released on the same days, such as Memorial Day and Independence Day, he replied, Hubris! Hubris. If you only think about your own business, you think, I've got a good story department, I've got a good marketing department, we're going to go out and do this. And you don't think that everybody else is thinking the same way. In a given weekend in a year, you'll have five movies open, and there's certainly not enough people to go around. The candid answer refers to hubris, but it displays no arrogance, no conceit of superiority to competing studios. The competition is simply not part of the decision, in which a difficult question has again been replaced by an easier one. The question that needs an answer is this. Considering what others will do, how many people will see our film? The question the studio executives considered is simpler and refers to knowledge that is most easily available to them. Do we have a good film and a good organization to market it? The familiar System 1 processes of what you see is all there is and substitution produce both competition neglect and the above-average effect. The consequence of competition neglect is excess entry. More competitors enter the market than the market can profitably sustain, so their average outcome is a loss. The outcome is disappointing for the typical entrant in the market, but the effect on the economy as a whole could well be positive. In fact, Giovanni Dossi and Dan Lovallo call entrepreneurial firms that fail but signal new markets to more qualified competitors optimistic martyrs. Good for the economy, but bad for their investors. Overconfidence For a number of years, professors at Duke University conducted a survey in which the chief financial officers of large corporations estimated the returns of the Standard & Poor's Index over the following year. The Duke scholars collected 11,600 such forecasts and examined their accuracy. The conclusion was straightforward. Financial officers of large corporations had no clue about the short-term future of the stock market. The correlation between their estimates and the true value was slightly less than zero. 
When they said the market would go down, it was slightly more likely than not that it would go up. These findings are not surprising. The truly bad news is that the CFOs did not appear to know that their forecasts were worthless. In addition to their best guess about S&P returns, the participants provided two other estimates, a value that they were 90% sure would be too high and one that they were 90% sure would be too low. The range between the two values is called an 80% confidence interval, and outcomes that fall outside the interval are labeled surprises. An individual who sets confidence intervals on multiple occasions expects about 20% of the outcomes to be surprises. As frequently happens in such exercises, there were far too many surprises. Their incidence was 67%, more than three times higher than expected. This shows that CFOs were grossly overconfident about their ability to forecast the market. Overconfidence is another manifestation of what you see is all there is. When we estimate a quantity, we rely on information that comes to mind and construct a coherent story in which the estimate makes sense. Allowing for the information that does not come to mind, perhaps because one never knew it, is impossible. The authors calculated the confidence intervals that would have reduced the incidence of surprises to 20%. The results were striking. To maintain the rate of surprises at the desired level, the CFOs should have said year after year, there is an 80% chance that the S&P return next year will be between minus 10% and plus 30%. The confidence interval that properly reflects the CFO's knowledge, more precisely their ignorance, is more than four times wider than the intervals they actually stated. Social psychology comes into the picture here, because the answer that a truthful CFO would offer is plainly ridiculous. A CFO who informs his colleagues that, there is a good chance that the S&P returns will be between minus 10% and plus 30%, can expect to be laughed out of the room. The wide confidence interval is a confession of ignorance, which is not socially acceptable for someone who is paid to be knowledgeable in financial matters. Even if they knew how little they know, the executives would be penalized for admitting it. President Truman famously asked for a one-armed economist who would take a clear stand. He was sick and tired of economists who kept saying, On the other hand, organizations that take the word of overconfident experts can expect costly consequences. The study of CFOs showed that those who were most confident and optimistic about the S&P index were also overconfident and optimistic about the prospects of their own firm, which went on to take more risk than others. As Nassim Taleb has argued, inadequate appreciation of the uncertainty of the environment inevitably leads economic agents to take risks they should avoid. However, optimism is highly valued, socially and in the market, People and firms reward the providers of dangerously misleading information 
more than they reward truth-tellers. One of the lessons of the financial crisis that led to the Great Recession is that there are periods in which competition, among experts and among organizations, creates powerful forces that favor a collective blindness to risk and uncertainty. The social and economic pressures that favor overconfidence are not restricted to financial forecasting. Other professionals must deal with the fact that an expert worthy of the name is expected to display high confidence. Philip Tetlock observed that the most overconfident experts were the most likely to be invited to strut their stuff in news shows. Overconfidence also appears to be endemic in medicine. A study of patients who died in the ICU compared autopsy results with the diagnosis that physicians had provided while the patients were still alive. Physicians also reported their confidence. The result? Clinicians who were completely certain of the diagnosis anti-mortem were wrong 40% of the time. Here again, expert overconfidence is encouraged by their clients. Generally, it is considered a weakness and a sign of vulnerability for clinicians to appear unsure. Confidence is valued over uncertainty, and there is a prevailing censure against disclosing uncertainty to patients. Experts who acknowledge the full extent of their ignorance may expect to be replaced by more confident competitors who are better able to gain the trust of clients. An unbiased appreciation of uncertainty is a cornerstone of rationality, but it is not what people and organizations want. Extreme uncertainty is paralyzing under dangerous circumstances, and the admission that one is merely guessing is especially unacceptable when the stakes are high. Acting on pretended knowledge is often the preferred solution. When they come together, the emotional, cognitive, and social factors that support exaggerated optimism are a heady brew, which sometimes leads people to take risks that they would avoid if they knew the odds. There is no evidence that risk-takers in the economic domain have an unusual appetite for gambles on high stakes. They are merely less aware of risks than more timid people are. Dan Lovallo and I coined the phrase bold forecasts and timid decisions to describe the background of risk-taking. The effects of high optimism on decision-making are, at best, a mixed blessing, but the contribution of optimism to good implementation is certainly positive. The main benefit of optimism is resilience in the face of setbacks. According to Martin Seligman, the founder of Positive Psychology, an optimistic explanation style contributes to resilience by defending one's self-image. In essence, the optimistic style involves taking credit for successes but little blame for failures. This style can be taught, at least to some extent, and Seligman has documented the effects of training on various occupations that are characterized by a high rate of failures, such as cold-call sales of insurance, a common pursuit in pre-Internet days. 
When one has just had a door slammed in one's face by an angry homemaker, the thought that she was an awful woman is clearly superior to I am an inept salesperson. I've always believed that scientific research is another domain where a forum of optimism is essential to success. I have yet to meet a successful scientist who lacks the ability to exaggerate the importance of what he or she is doing, and I believe that someone who lacks a delusional sense of significance will wilt in the face of repeated experiences of multiple small failures and rare successes, the fate of most researchers. The Premortem A Partial Remedy can overconfident optimism be overcome by training? I am not optimistic. There have been numerous attempts to train people to state confidence intervals that reflect the imprecision of their judgments with only a few reports of modest success. An often cited example is that geologists at Royal Dutch Shell became less overconfident in their assessments of possible drilling sites after training with multiple past cases for which the outcome was known. In other situations, overconfidence was mitigated, but not eliminated, when judges were encouraged to consider competing hypotheses. However, overconfidence is a direct consequence of features of System 1 that can be tamed, but not vanquished. The main obstacle is that subjective confidence is determined by the coherence of the story one has constructed, not by the quality and amount of the information that supports it. Organizations may be better able to tame optimism and individuals than individuals are. The best idea for doing so was contributed by Gary Klein, my adversarial collaborator, who generally defends intuitive decision-making against claims of bias and is typically hostile to algorithms. He labels his proposal the pre-mortem. The procedure is simple. When the organization has almost come to an important decision but has not formally committed itself, Klein proposes gathering for a brief session a group of individuals who are knowledgeable about the decision. The premise of the session is a short speech. Imagine that we are a year into the future. We implemented the plan as it now exists. The outcome was a disaster. Please take five to ten minutes to write a brief history of that disaster. Gary Klein's idea of the pre-mortem usually evokes immediate enthusiasm. After I described it casually at a session in Davos, someone behind me muttered, It was worth coming to Davos just for this. I later noticed that the speaker was the CEO of a major international corporation. The pre-mortem has two main advantages. It overcomes the groupthink that affects many teams once a decision appears to have been made, and it unleashes the imagination of knowledgeable individuals in a much-needed direction. As a team converges on a decision, and especially when the leader tips her hand, public doubts about the wisdom of the planned move are gradually suppressed and eventually come to be treated as evidence of flawed loyalty to the team 
and its leaders. The suppression of doubt contributes to overconfidence in a group where only supporters of the decision have a voice. The main virtue of the premortem is that it legitimizes doubts. Furthermore, it encourages even supporters of the decision to search for possible threats that they had not considered earlier. The premortem is not a panacea and does not provide complete protection against nasty surprises, but it goes some way toward reducing the damage of plans that are subject to the biases of what you see is all there is and uncritical optimism. Speaking of optimism, they have an illusion of control. They seriously underestimate the obstacles. They seem to suffer from an acute case of competitor neglect. This is a case of overconfidence. They seem to believe they know more than they actually do know. We should conduct a pre-mortem session. Someone may come up with a threat we have neglected. Part 4 Choices Chapter 25 Bernoulli's Errors One day in the early 1970s, Amos handed me a mimeographed essay by a Swiss economist named Bruno Frey, which discussed the psychological assumptions of economic theory. I vividly remember the color of the cover, dark red. Bruno Frey barely recalls writing the piece, but I can still recite its first sentence. The agent of economic theory is rational, selfish, and his tastes do not change. I was astonished. My economist colleagues worked in the building next door, but I had not appreciated the profound difference between our intellectual worlds. To a psychologist, it is self-evident that people are neither fully rational nor completely selfish, and that their tastes are anything but stable. Our two disciplines seem to be studying different species, which the behavioral economist Richard Thaler later dubbed Econs and Humans. Unlike Econs, the humans that psychologists know have a system one. Their view of the world is limited by the information that is available at a given moment. What you see is all there is, and therefore they cannot be as consistent and logical as econs. They are sometimes generous and often willing to contribute to the group to which they are attached, and they often have little idea of what they will like next year or even tomorrow. Here was an opportunity for an interesting conversation across the boundaries of the disciplines. I did not anticipate that my career would be defined by that conversation. Soon after he showed me Frey's article, Amos suggested that we make the study of decision-making our next project. I knew next to nothing about the topic, but Amos was an expert and a star of the field, and he said he would coach me. While still a graduate student, he had co-authored a textbook, Mathematical Psychology, and he directed me to a few chapters that he thought would be a good introduction. I soon learned that our subject matter would be people's attitudes to risky options 
and that we would seek to answer a specific question. What rules govern people's choices between different simple gambles and between gambles and sure things? Simple gambles, such as 40% chance to win $300, are to students of decision-making what the fruit fly is to geneticists. Choices between such gambles provide a simple model that shares important features with the more complex decisions that researchers actually aim to understand. Gambles represent the fact that the consequences of choices are never certain. Even ostensibly sure outcomes are uncertain. When you sign the contract to buy an apartment, you do not know the price at which you later may have to sell it, nor do you know that your neighbor's son will soon take up the tuba. Every significant choice we make in life comes with some uncertainty, which is why students of decision-making hope that some of the lessons learned in the model situation will be applicable to more interesting everyday problems. But of course, the main reason that decision theorists study simple gambles is that this is what other decision theorists do. The field had a theory, expected utility theory, which was the foundation of the rational agent mode and is to this day the most important theory in the social sciences. Expected utility theory was not intended as a psychological model. It was a logic of choice, based on elementary rules, axioms, of rationality. Consider this example. If you prefer an apple to a banana, then you also prefer a 10% chance to win an apple to a 10% chance to win a banana. The apple and the banana stand for any objects of choice, including gambles, and the 10% chance stands for any probability. The mathematician John von Neumann, one of the giant intellectual figures of the 20th century, and the economist Oscar Morgenstern, had derived their theory of rational choice between gambles from a few axioms. Economists adopted expected utility theory in a dual role, as a logic that prescribes how decisions should be made, and as a description of how econs make choices. Amos and I were psychologists, however, and we set out to understand how humans actually make risky choices without assuming anything about their rationality. We maintained our routine of spending many hours each day in conversation, sometimes in our offices, sometimes at restaurants, often on long walks through the quiet streets of beautiful Jerusalem. As we had done when we studied judgment, we engaged in a careful examination of our own intuitive preferences. We spent our time inventing simple decision problems and asking ourselves how we would choose. For example, which do you prefer? A. Toss a coin. If it comes up heads, you win $100, and if it comes up tails, you win nothing. B. Get $46 for sure. We were not trying to figure out the most rational or advantageous choice. We wanted to find the intuitive choice, the one that appeared immediately tempting. We almost always selected the same option. 
In this example, both of us would have picked the sure thing, and you probably would do the same. When we confidently agreed on a choice, we believed, almost always correctly as it turned out, that most people would share our preference, and we moved on as if we had solid evidence. We knew, of course, that we would need to verify our hunches later, but by playing the roles of both experimenters and subjects, we were able to move quickly. Five years after we began our study of gambles, we finally completed an essay that we titled Prospect Theory, An Analysis of Decision Under Risk. Our theory was closely modeled on utility theory, but departed from it in fundamental ways. Most important, our model was purely descriptive, and its goal was to document and explain systematic violations of the axioms of rationality in choices between gambles. We submitted our essay to Econometrica, a journal that publishes significant theoretical articles in economics and in decision theory. The choice of venue turned out to be important. If we had published the identical paper in a psychological journal, it would likely have had little impact on economics. However, our decision was not guided by a wish to influence economics. Econometrica just happened to be where the best papers on decision-making had been published in the past, and we were aspiring to be in that company. In this choice, as in many others, we were lucky. Prospect theory turned out to be the most significant work we ever did, and our article is among the most often cited in the social sciences. Two years later, we published in Science an account of framing effects the large changes of preferences that are sometimes caused by inconsequential variations in the wording of a choice problem. During the first five years, we spent looking at how people make decisions. We established a dozen facts about choices between risky options. Several of these facts were in flat contradiction to expected utility theory. Some had been observed before, a few were new. Then we constructed a theory that modified expected utility theory just enough to explain our collection of observations. That was prospect theory. Our approach to the problem was in the spirit of a field of psychology called psychophysics, which was founded and named by the German psychologist and mystic Gustav Fechner, 1801-1887. Fechner was obsessed with the relation of mind and matter. On one side, there is a physical quantity that can vary, such as the energy of a light, the frequency of a tone, or an amount of money. On the other side, there is a subjective experience of brightness, pitch, or value. Mysteriously, Variations of the physical quantity cause variations in the intensity or quality of the subjective experience. Fechner's project was to find the psychophysical laws that relate the subjective quality in the observer's mind to the objective quantity in the material world. He proposed that for many dimensions, the function is logarithmic which simply means that an increase in stimulus intensity by a given factor, say, 
times 1.5 or times 10 always yields the same increment on the psychological scale. If raising the energy of the sound from 10 to 100 units of physical energy increases psychological intensity by 4 units, then a further increase of stimulus intensity from 100 to 1,000 will also increase psychological intensity by 4 units. Bernoulli's Error As Fechner well knew, he was not the first to look for a function that relates psychological intensity to the physical magnitude of the stimulus. In 1738, the Swiss scientist Daniel Bernoulli anticipated Fechner's reasoning and applied it to the relationship between the psychological value or desirability of money, now called utility, and the actual amount of money. He argued that a gift of ten ducats has the same utility to someone who already has one hundred ducats as a gift of twenty ducats to someone whose current wealth is two hundred ducats. Bernoulli was right, of course. We normally speak of changes of income in terms of percentages, as when we say she got a thirty percent raise. The idea is that a 30% raise may evoke a fairly similar psychological response for the rich and for the poor, which an increase of $100 will not do. As in Fechner's law, the psychological response to a change of wealth is inversely proportional to the initial amount of wealth, leading to the conclusion that utility is a logarithmic function of wealth. If this function is accurate, the same psychological distance separates $100,000 from $1 million and $10 million from $100 million. Bernoulli drew on his psychological insight into the utility of wealth to propose a radically new approach to the evaluation of gambles, an important topic for the mathematicians of his day. Prior to Bernoulli, Mathematicians had assumed that gambles are assessed by their expected value, a weighted average of the possible outcomes, where each outcome is weighted by its probability. For example, the expected value of 80% chance to win $100 and 20% chance to win $10 is $82. 0 0.8 times 100 plus 0 0.2 times 10. Now ask yourself this question. Which would you prefer to receive as a gift, this gamble or $80 for sure? Almost everyone prefers the sure thing. If people valued uncertain prospects by their expected value, they would prefer the gamble, because $82 is more than $80. Bernoulli pointed out that this prediction does not describe what people in fact do. Bernoulli observed that most people dislike risk, the chance of receiving the lowest possible outcome, and if they are offered a choice between a gamble and an amount equal to its expected value, they will pick the sure thing. In fact, a risk-averse decision-maker will choose a sure thing that is less than expected value in effect paying a premium to avoid the uncertainty. One hundred years before Fechner, 
Bernoulli invented psychophysics to explain this aversion to risk. His idea was straightforward. People's choices are based not on dollar values, but on the psychological values of outcomes, their utilities. The psychological value of a gamble is therefore not the weighted average of its possible dollar outcomes. It is the average of the utilities of these outcomes, each weighted by its probability. The following example is a version of the utility function that Bernoulli calculated. It presents the utility of different levels of wealth, from 1 million to 10 million. Wealth, 1 million, utility units, 10. Wealth, 2 million, utility units, 30. Wealth, 3 million, utility units, 48. Wealth, 4 million, utility units, 60. Wealth, 5 million, utility units, 70. Wealth, 6 million, utility units, 78. Wealth, 7 million, utility units, 84. Wealth, 8 million, utility units, 90. Wealth, 9 million, utility units, 96. Wealth, 10 million, utility units, 100. You can see that adding 1 million to a wealth of 1 million yields an increment of 20 utility points, but adding 1 million to a wealth of 9 million adds only 4 points. Bernoulli proposed that the diminishing marginal value of wealth, in modern jargon, is what explains risk aversion. The common preference that people generally show for a sure thing over a favorable gamble of equal or slightly higher expected value. Consider this choice. Equal chances to have 1 million or 7 million. Utility, 10 plus 84, divided by 2 equals 47. Or, have 4 million with certainty. Utility, 60. The expected value of the gamble and the sure thing are equal in ducats, 4 million but the psychological utilities of the two options are different because of the diminishing utility of wealth. The increment of utility from 1 million to 4 million is 50 units, but an equal increment from 4 to 7 million increases the utility of wealth by only 24 units. The utility of the gamble is 94 divided by 2 equals 47. The utility of its two outcomes, each weighted by its probability of 1 divided by 2. The utility of 4 million is 60. Because 60 is more than 47, an individual with this utility function will prefer the sure thing. Bernoulli's insight was that a decision-maker with diminishing marginal utility for wealth will be risk-averse. Bernoulli's essay is a marvel of concise brilliance. He applied his new concept of expected utility, which he called moral expectation, to compute how much a merchant in St. Petersburg would be willing to pay to ensure a shipment of spice from Amsterdam if he is well aware of the fact that at this time of year, of 100 ships which sail from Amsterdam to Petersburg, five are usually lost. His utility function explained why poor people buy insurance and why richer people sell it to them. As you can see in the former example, 
The loss of one million causes a loss of four points of utility, from one hundred to ninety-six, to someone who has ten million, and a much larger loss of eighteen points, from forty-eight to thirty, to someone who starts off with three million. The poorer man will happily pay a premium to transfer the risk to the richer one, which is what insurance is about. Bernoulli also offered a solution to the famous Saint Petersburg paradox, in which people who are offered a gamble that has infinite expected value in ducats are willing to spend only a few ducats for it. Most impressive, his analysis of risk attitudes in terms of preferences for wealth. Has stood the test of time. It is still current in economic analysis almost three hundred years later. The longevity of the theory is all the more remarkable because it is seriously flawed. The errors of a theory are rarely found in what it asserts explicitly; they hide in what it ignores or tacitly assumes. For an example, take the following scenarios. Today, Jack and Jill each have a wealth of five million. Yesterday, Jack had one million and Jill had nine million. Are they equally happy? Do they have the same utility? Bernoulli's theory assumes that the utility of their wealth is what makes people more or less happy. Jack and Jill have the same wealth, and the theory therefore asserts that they should be equally happy. But you do not need a degree in psychology to know that today Jack is elated and Jill despondent. Indeed, we know that Jack would be a great deal happier than Jill, even if he had only two million today, while she has five. So Bernoulli's theory must be wrong. The happiness that Jack and Jill experience is determined by the recent change in their wealth, relative to the different states of wealth that define their reference points. One million for Jack, nine million for Jill. This reference dependence is ubiquitous in sensation and perception. The same sound will be experienced as very loud or quite faint, depending on whether it was preceded by a whisper. Or by a roar, to predict the subjective experience of loudness, it is not enough to know its absolute energy. You also need to know the reference sound to which it is automatically compared. Similarly, you need to know about the background before you can predict whether a gray patch on a page will appear dark or light, and you need to know the reference before you can predict the utility of an amount of wealth. For another example of what Bernoulli's theory misses, consider Anthony and Betty. Anthony's current wealth is one million. Betty's current wealth is four million. They are both offered a choice between a gamble and a sure thing. The gamble: equal chances to end up owning one million or four million, or the sure thing: own two million for sure. In Bernoulli's account. Anthony and Betty face the same choice. Their expected wealth will be 2.5 million if they take the gamble, and 2 million if they prefer the sure thing option. Bernoulli would therefore expect Anthony and Betty to make the same choice, but this prediction is incorrect. Here again, 
the theory fails because it does not allow for the different reference points from which Anthony and Betty consider their options. If you imagine yourself in Anthony's and Betty's shoes, you will quickly see that current wealth matters a great deal more. Here is how they may think. Anthony, who currently owns one million. If I choose the sure thing, my wealth will double with certainty. This is very attractive. Alternatively, I can take a gamble with equal chances to quadruple my wealth or to gain nothing. Betty, who currently owns four million. If I choose the sure thing, I lose half of my wealth with certainty, which is awful. Alternatively, I can take a gamble with equal chances to lose three quarters of my wealth or to lose nothing. You can sense that Anthony and Betty are likely to make different choices because the sure thing option of owning two million makes Anthony happy and makes Betty miserable. Note also how the sure outcome differs from the worst outcome of the gamble. For Anthony, it is the difference between doubling his wealth and gaining nothing. For Betty, it is the difference between losing half her wealth and losing three quarters of it. Betty is much more likely to take her chances as others do when faced with very bad options. As I have told their story. Neither Anthony nor Betty thinks in terms of states of wealth. Anthony thinks of gains, and Betty thinks of losses. The psychological outcomes they assess are entirely different, although the possible states of wealth they face are the same. Because Bernoulli's model lacks the idea of a reference point. Expected utility theory does not represent the obvious fact that the outcome that is good for Anthony is bad for Betty. His model could explain Anthony's risk aversion, but it cannot explain Betty's risk-seeking preference for the gamble, a behavior that is often observed in entrepreneurs and in generals when all their options are bad. All this is rather obvious, isn't it? One could easily imagine Bernoulli himself constructing similar examples and developing a more complex theory to accommodate them. For some reason, he did not. One could also imagine colleagues of his time disagreeing with him, or later scholars objecting as they read his essay. For some reason, they did not either. The mystery is how a conception of the utility of outcomes that is vulnerable to such obvious counterexamples survived for so long. I can explain it only by a weakness of the scholarly mind that I have often observed in myself. I call it theory-induced blindness. Once you have accepted a theory and used it as a tool in your thinking, it is extraordinarily difficult to notice its flaws. If you come upon an observation that does not seem to fit the model, you assume that there must be a perfectly good explanation that you are somehow missing. You give the theory the benefit of the doubt, trusting the community of experts who have accepted it. Many scholars have surely thought at one time or another of stories such as those of Anthony and Betty or Jack and Jill, and casually noted that these stories did not jibe with utility theory. But they did not pursue the idea to the point of saying, "This theory is seriously wrong." Because it ignores the fact that utility depends on the history of one's wealth, 
not only on present wealth. As the psychologist Daniel Gilbert observed, disbelieving is hard work, and System 2 is easily tired. Speaking of Bernoulli's errors He was very happy with a $20,000 bonus three years ago, but his salary has gone up by 20% since, so he will need a higher bonus to get the same utility. Both candidates are willing to accept the salary we're offering, but they won't be equally satisfied because their reference points are different. She currently has a much higher salary. She's suing him for alimony. She would actually like to settle, but he prefers to go to court. That's not surprising. She can only gain, so she's risk-averse. He, on the other hand, faces options that are all bad, so he'd rather take the risk. Chapter 26 Prospect Theory Amos and I stumbled on the central flaw in Bernoulli's theory by a lucky combination of skill and ignorance. At Amos's suggestion, I read a chapter in his book that described experiments in which distinguished scholars had measured the utility of money by asking people to make choices about gambles in which the participant could win or lose a few pennies. The experimenters were measuring the utility of wealth by modifying wealth within a range of less than a dollar. This raised questions. Is it plausible to assume that people evaluate the gambles by tiny differences in wealth? How could one hope to learn about the psychophysics of wealth by studying reactions to gains and losses of pennies? Recent developments in psychophysical theory suggested that if you want to study the subjective value of wealth, you should ask direct questions about wealth, not about changes of wealth. I did not know enough about utility theory to be blinded by respect for it, and I was puzzled. When Amos and I met the next day, I reported my difficulties as a vague thought, not as a discovery. I fully expected him to set me straight and to explain why the experiment that had puzzled me made sense after all, but he did nothing of the kind. The relevance of the modern psychophysics was immediately obvious to him. He remembered the economist, Harry Markowitz, who would later earn the Nobel Prize for his work on finance, had proposed a theory in which utilities were attached to changes of wealth rather than to states of wealth. Markowitz's idea had been around for a quarter of a century and had not attracted much attention, but we quickly concluded that this was the way to go, and that the theory we were planning to develop would define outcomes as gains and losses, not as states of wealth. Knowledge of perception and ignorance about decision theory both contributed to a large step forward in our research. We soon knew that we had overcome a serious case of theory-induced blindness because the idea we had rejected now seemed not only false but absurd. We were amused to realize that we were unable to assess our current wealth within tens of thousands of dollars. The idea of deriving attitudes to small changes from the utility of wealth now seemed indefensible. 
You know you have made a theoretical advance when you can no longer reconstruct why you failed for so long to see the obvious. Still, it took us years to explore the implications of thinking about outcomes as gains and losses. In utility theory, the utility of a gain is assessed by comparing the utilities of two states of wealth. For example, the utility of getting an extra $500 when your wealth is $1 million is the difference between the utility of $1,500,000 and the utility of $1,000,000. And if you own the larger amount, the disutility of losing $500 is again the difference between the utilities of the two states of wealth. In this theory... The utilities of gains and losses are allowed to differ only in their sign, plus or minus. There is no way to represent the fact that the disutility of losing $500 could be greater than the utility of winning the same amount, though of course it is. As might be expected in a situation of theory-induced blindness, Possible differences between gains and losses were neither expected nor studied. The distinction between gains and losses was assumed not to matter, so there was no point in examining it. Amos and I did not see immediately that our focus on changes of wealth opened the way to an exploration of a new topic. We were mainly concerned with differences between gambles with high or low probability of winning. One day, Amos made the casual suggestion, How about losses? And we quickly found that our familiar risk aversion was replaced by risk-seeking when we switched our focus. Consider these two problems. Problem 1. Which do you choose? Get $900 for sure, or 90% chance to get $1,000. Problem 2. Which do you choose? Get $900 for sure, or 90% chance to lose $1,000. You were probably risk-averse in problem one, as is the great majority of people. The subjective value of a gain of $900 is certainly more than 90% of the value of a gain of $1,000. The risk-averse choice in this problem would not have surprised Bernoulli. Now examine your preference in problem two. If you are like most other people, you chose the gamble in this question. The explanation for this risk-seeking choice is the mirror image of the explanation of risk aversion in problem one. The negative value of losing $900 is much more than 90% of the negative value of losing $1,000. The sure loss is very aversive, and this drives you to take the risk. Later, we will see that the evaluations of the probabilities, 90% versus 100%, also contributes to both risk aversion in problem one and the preference for the gamble in problem two. We were not the first to notice that people become risk-seeking when all their options are bad, but theory-induced blindness had prevailed. Because the dominant theory did not provide a plausible way to accommodate different attitudes to risk for gains and losses, the fact that the attitudes differed had to be ignored. In contrast, our decision to view outcomes as gains and losses 
led us to focus precisely on this discrepancy. The observation of contrasting attitudes to risk with favorable and unfavorable prospects soon yielded a significant advance. We found a way to demonstrate the central error in Bernoulli's model of choice. Have a look. Problem 3. In addition to whatever you own, you have been given $1,000. You are now asked to choose one of these options, 50% chance to win $1,000 or get $500 for sure. Problem 4. In addition to whatever you own, you have been given $2,000. You are now asked to choose one of these options, 50% chance to lose $1,000 or lose $500 for sure. You can easily confirm that in terms of final states of wealth, all that matters for Bernoulli's theory, problems 3 and 4 are identical. In both cases, you have a choice between the same two options. You can have the certainty of being richer than you currently are by $1,500, or accept a gamble in which you have equal chances to be richer by $1,000 or by $2,000. In Bernoulli's theory, therefore, the two problems should elicit similar preferences. Check your intuitions, and you will probably guess what other people did. In the first choice, a large majority of respondents preferred the sure thing. In the second choice, a large majority preferred the gamble. The finding of different preferences in problems 3 and 4 was a decisive counterexample to the key idea of Bernoulli's theory. If the utility of wealth is all that matters, then transparently equivalent statements of the same problem should yield identical choices. The comparison of the problems highlights the all-important role of the reference point from which the options are evaluated. The reference point is higher than current wealth by $1,000 in Problem 3, by $2,000 in Problem 4. Being richer by $1,500 is therefore a gain of $500 in Problem 3 and a loss in Problem 4. Obviously, other examples of the same kind are easy to generate. The story of Anthony and Betty had a similar structure. How much attention did you pay to the gift of $1,000 or $2,000 that you were given prior to making your choice? If you were like most people, you barely noticed it. Indeed, there was no reason for you to attend to it because the gift is included in the reference point, and reference points are generally ignored. You know something about your preferences that utility theorists do not, that your attitudes to risk would not be different if your net worth were higher or lower by a few thousand dollars, unless you are abjectly poor. And you also know that your attitudes to gains and losses are not derived from your evaluation of your wealth. The reason you like the idea of gaining $100 and dislike the idea of losing $100 is not that these amounts change your wealth. You just like winning and dislike losing, and you almost certainly dislike losing more than you like winning. The four problems highlight the weakness of Bernoulli's model. His theory is too simple and lacks a moving part. 
The missing variable is the reference point, the earlier state relative to which gains and losses are evaluated. In Bernoulli's theory, you need to know only the state of wealth to determine its utility. But in prospect theory, you also need to know the reference state. Prospect theory is therefore more complex than utility theory. In science, complexity is considered a cost, which must be justified by a sufficiently rich set of new and preferably interesting predictions of facts that the existing theory cannot explain. This was the challenge we had to meet. Although Amos and I were not working with the two-systems model of the mind, it's clear now that there are three cognitive features at the heart of prospect theory. They play an essential role in the evaluation of financial outcomes and are common to many automatic processes of perception, judgment, and emotion. They should be seen as operating characteristics of System 1. Evaluation is relative to a neutral reference point, which is sometimes referred to as an adaptation level. You can easily set up a compelling demonstration of this principle. Place three bowls of water in front of you. Put ice water into the left-hand bowl and warm water into the right-hand bowl. The water in the middle bowl should be at room temperature. Immerse your hands in the cold and warm water for about a minute. Then dip both in the middle bowl. You will experience the same temperature as heat in one hand and cold in the other. For financial outcomes... The usual reference point is the status quo, but it can also be the outcome that you expect, or perhaps the outcome to which you feel entitled, for example, the raise or bonus that your colleagues receive. Outcomes that are better than the reference points are gains. Below the reference point, they are losses. A principle of diminishing sensitivity applies to both sensory dimensions and the evaluation of changes of wealth. Turning on a weak light has a large effect in a dark room. The same increment of light may be undetectable in a brightly illuminated room. Similarly, the subjective difference between $900 and $1,000 is much smaller than the difference between $100 and $200. The third principle is loss aversion. When directly compared or weighted against each other, losses loom larger than gains. This asymmetry between the power of positive and negative expectations or experiences has an evolutionary history. Organisms that treat threats as more urgent than opportunities have a better chance to survive and reproduce. The three principles that govern the value of outcomes are illustrated by figure 10 on the PDF. If prospect theory had a flag, this image would be drawn on it. The graph shows the psychological value of gains and losses, which are the carriers of value in prospect theory, unlike Bernoulli's model in which states of wealth are the carriers of value. The graph has two distinct parts to the right and to the left of a neutral reference point. A salient feature is that it is S-shaped, which represents diminishing sensitivity for both gains and losses. 
Finally, the two curves of the S are not symmetrical. The slope of the function changes abruptly at the reference point. The response to losses is stronger than the response to corresponding gains. This is loss aversion. Loss aversion Many of the options we face in life are mixed. There is a risk of loss and an opportunity for gain, and we must decide whether to accept the gamble or reject it. Investors who evaluate a startup, lawyers who wonder whether to file a lawsuit, wartime generals who consider an offensive, and politicians who must decide whether to run for office all face the possibilities of victory or defeat. For an elementary example of a mixed prospect, examine your reaction to the next question. Problem 5. You are offered a gamble on the toss of a coin. If the coin shows tails, you lose $100. If the coin shows heads, you win $150. Is this gamble attractive? Would you accept it? To make this choice, you must balance the psychological benefit of getting $150 against the psychological cost of losing $100. How do you feel about it? Although the expected value of the gamble is obviously positive because you stand to gain more than you can lose, you probably dislike it. Most people do. The rejection of this gamble is an act of System 2. But the critical inputs are emotional responses that are generated by System 1. For most people, the fear of losing $100 is more intense than the hope of gaining $150. We concluded from many such observations that losses loom larger than gains, and that people are loss-averse. You can measure the extent of your aversion to losses by asking yourself a question. What is the smallest gain that I need to balance an equal chance to lose $100? For many people, the answer is about $200, twice as much as the loss. The loss-aversion ratio has been estimated in several experiments and is usually in the range of 1.5 to 2.5. This is an average, of course. Some people are much more loss-averse than others. Professional risk-takers in the financial markets are more tolerant of losses, probably because they do not respond emotionally to every fluctuation. When participants in an experiment were instructed to think like a trader, they became less loss-averse, and their emotional reaction to losses, measured by the physiological index of emotional arousal, was sharply reduced. In order to examine your loss-aversion ratio for different stakes, consider the following questions. Ignore any social considerations, do not try to appear either bold or cautious, and focus only on the subjective impact of the possible loss and the offsetting gain. Consider a 50-50 gamble in which you can lose $10. What is the smallest gain that makes the gamble attractive? If you say $10, then you are indifferent to risk. If you give a number less than $10, you seek risk. If your answer is above $10, you are loss-averse. What about a possible loss of $500 on a coin toss? 
What possible gain do you require to offset it? What about a loss of $2,000? As you carried out this exercise, you probably found that your loss aversion coefficient tends to increase when the stakes rise, but not dramatically. All bets are off, of course, if the possible loss is potentially ruinous or if your lifestyle is threatened. The loss aversion coefficient is very large in such cases and may even be infinite. There are risks that you will not accept, regardless of how many millions you might stand to win if you are lucky. Another look at Figure 10 may help prevent a common confusion. In this chapter, I have made two claims, which some readers may view as contradictory. In mixed gambles, where both a gain and a loss are possible, loss aversion causes extremely risk-averse choices. In bad choices, where a sure loss is compared to a larger loss that is merely probable, diminishing sensitivity causes risk-seeking. There is no contradiction. In the mixed case, the possible loss looms twice as large as the possible gain, as you can see by comparing the slopes of the value function for losses and gains. In the bad case, the bending of the value curve, diminishing sensitivity, causes risk-seeking. The pain of losing $900 is more than 90% of the pain of losing $1,000. These two insights are the essence of prospect theory. Figure 10 shows an abrupt change in the slope of the value function where gains turn into losses because there is considerable loss aversion even when the amount at risk is minuscule relative to your wealth. Is it plausible that attitudes to states of wealth could explain the extreme aversion to small risks? It is a striking example of theory-induced blindness that this obvious flaw in Bernoulli's theory failed to attract scholarly notice for more than 250 years. In 2000, the behavioral economist Matthew Rabin finally proved mathematically that attempts to explain loss aversion by the utility of wealth are absurd and doomed to fail, and his proof attracted attention. Rabin's theorem shows that anyone who rejects a favorable gamble with small stakes is mathematically committed to a foolish level of risk aversion for some larger gamble. For example, he notes that most humans reject the following gamble. 50% chance to lose $100 and 50% chance to win $200. He then shows that according to utility theory, an individual who rejects that gamble will also turn down the following gamble. 50% chance to lose $200 and 50% chance to win $20,000. But of course no one in his or her right mind will reject this gamble. In an exuberant article they wrote about the proof, Matthew Rabin and Richard Thaler commented that the larger gamble has an expected return of $9,900, with exactly zero chance of losing more than $200. Even a lousy lawyer could have you declared legally insane for turning down this gamble. Perhaps carried away by their enthusiasm, 
They concluded their article by recalling the famous Monty Python sketch in which a frustrated customer attempts to return a dead parrot to a pet store. The customer uses a long series of phrases to describe the state of the bird, culminating in, This is an ex-parrot. Rabin and Thaler went on to say that, It is time for economists to recognize that expected utility is an ex-hypothesis. Many economists saw this flippant statement as little short of blasphemy. However, the theory-induced blindness of accepting the utility of wealth as an explanation of attitudes to small losses is a legitimate target for humorous comment. Blind Spots of Prospect Theory So far in this part of the book, I have extolled the virtues of prospect theory and criticized the rational model and expected utility theory. It is time for some balance. Most graduate students in economics have heard about prospect theory and loss aversion, but you are unlikely to find these terms in the index of an introductory text in economics. I am sometimes pained by this omission, but in fact it is quite reasonable because of the central role of rationality in basic economic theory. The standard concepts and results that undergraduates are taught are most easily explained by assuming that econs do not make foolish mistakes. This assumption is truly necessary, and it would be undermined by introducing the humans of prospect theory whose evaluations of outcomes are unreasonably short-sighted. There are good reasons for keeping prospect theory out of introductory texts. The basic concepts of economics are essential intellectual tools, which are not easy to grasp even with simplified and unrealistic assumptions about the nature of the economic agents who interact in markets. Raising questions about these assumptions, even as they are introduced, would be confusing and perhaps demoralizing. It is reasonable to put priority on helping students acquire the basic tools of the discipline. Furthermore, the failure of rationality that is built into prospect theory is often irrelevant to the predictions of economic theory, which work out with great precision in some situations and provide good approximations in many others. However, the decision-makers that prospect theory describes are guided by the immediate emotional impact of gains and losses, not by the long-term prospects of increasing wealth or maximizing overall utility, and this difference is crucial in many contexts. I emphasized theory-induced blindness in my discussion of flaws in Bernoulli's model that remained unquestioned for more than two centuries. But, of course, theory-induced blindness is not restricted to expected utility theory. Prospect theory has flaws of its own, and theory-induced blindness to these flaws has contributed to its acceptance as the main alternative to utility theory. Consider the assumption of prospect theory that the reference point, usually the status quo, has a value of zero. This assumption seems reasonable, but it leads to some absurd consequences. Have a look at the following prospects. What would it be like to own them?
A. One chance in a million to win one million dollars. B. Ninety percent chance to win twelve dollars and ten percent chance to win nothing. C. Ninety percent chance to win one million dollars and ten percent chance to win nothing. Winning nothing is a possible outcome in all three gambles, and prospect theory assigns the same value to that outcome in the three cases. Winning nothing is the reference point, and its value is zero. Do these statements correspond to your experience? Of course not. Winning nothing is a non-event in the first two cases, and assigning it a value of zero makes good sense. In contrast, failing to win in the third scenario is intensely disappointing. Like a salary increase that has been promised informally, the high probability of winning the large sum sets up a tentative new reference point. Relative to your expectations, winning nothing will be experienced as a large loss. Prospect theory cannot cope with this fact because it does not allow the value of an outcome, in this case winning nothing, to change when it is highly unlikely or when the alternative is very valuable. In simple words, prospect theory cannot deal with disappointment. Disappointment. And the anticipation of disappointment are real, however, and the failure to acknowledge them is as obvious a flaw as the counterexamples that I invoked to criticize Bernoulli's theory. Prospect theory and utility theory also fail to allow for regret. The two theories share the assumption that available options in a choice are evaluated separately and independently. And that the option with the highest value is selected. This assumption is certainly wrong, as the following example shows. Problem six: Choose between 90% chance to win one million dollars or fifty dollars with certainty. Problem seven: Choose between 90% chance to win one million dollars or one hundred fifty thousand dollars with certainty. Compare the anticipated pain of choosing the gamble and not winning in the two cases. Failing to win is a disappointment in both, but the potential pain is compounded in problem seven by knowing that if you choose the gamble and lose, you will regret the greedy decision you made by spurning a sure gift of one hundred fifty thousand dollars. In regret. The experience of an outcome depends on an option you could have adopted but did not. Several economists and psychologists have proposed models of decision making that are based on the emotions of regret and disappointment. It is fair to say that these models have had less influence than prospect theory, and the reason is instructive. The emotions of regret and disappointment are real. And decision makers surely anticipate these emotions when making their choices. The problem is that regret theories make few striking predictions that would distinguish them from prospect theory, which has the advantage of being simpler. The complexity of prospect theory was more acceptable in the competition with expected utility theory because it did predict observations that expected utility theory could not explain. 
richer, and more realistic assumptions do not suffice to make a theory successful. Scientists use theories as a bag of working tools, and they will not take on the burden of a heavier bag unless the new tools are very useful. Prospect theory was accepted by many scholars not because it is true, but because the concepts that it added to utility theory, notably the reference point and loss aversion, were worth the trouble. They yielded new predictions that turned out to be true. This was, to no small extent, a matter of luck. Speaking of prospect theory. He suffers from extreme loss aversion, which makes him turn down very favorable opportunities. Considering her vast wealth, her emotional response to trivial gains and losses makes no sense. He weighs losses about twice as much as gains, which is normal. Chapter 27 The Endowment Effect you have probably seen Figure 11, which is on the PDF, or a close cousin of it, even if you never had a class in economics. The graph displays an individual's indifference map for two goods. Students learn in introductory economics classes that each point on the map specifies a particular combination of income and vacation days. Each indifference curve connects the combination of the two goods that are equally desirable. They have the same utility. The curves would turn into straight lines if people were willing to sell vacation days for extra income at the same price, regardless of how much income and how much vacation time they have. The convex shape indicates diminishing marginal utility. The more leisure you have, the less you care for an extra day of it and each added day is worth less than the one before. Similarly, the more income you have, the less you care for an extra dollar, and the amount you are willing to give up for an extra day of leisure increases. All locations on an indifference curve are equally attractive. This is literally what indifference means. You don't care where you are on an indifference curve. So if A and B are on the same indifference curve for you, you are indifferent between them and will need no incentive to move from one to the other or back. Some version of this figure has appeared in every economics textbook written in the last hundred years, and many millions of students have stared at it. Few have noticed what it is missing. Here again, the power and elegance of a theoretical model have blinded students and scholars to a serious deficiency. What is missing from the figure is an indication of the individual's current income and leisure. If you are a salaried employee, the terms of your employment specify a salary and a number of vacation days, which is a point on the map. This is your reference point, your status quo, but the figure does not show it. By failing to display it, the theorists who draw this figure invite you to believe that the reference point does not matter. But by now you know that of course it does. This is Bernoulli's error all over again. 
The representation of indifference curves implicitly assumes that your utility at any given moment is determined entirely by your present situation, that the past is irrelevant, and that your evaluation of a possible job does not depend on the terms of your current job. These assumptions are completely unrealistic in this case and in many others. The omission of the reference point from the indifference map is a surprising case of theory-induced blindness, because we so often encounter cases in which the reference point obviously matters. In labor negotiations, it is well understood by both sides that the reference point is the existing contract and that the negotiations will focus on mutual demands for concessions relative to that reference point. The role of loss aversion in bargaining is also well understood. Making concessions hurts. You have much personal experience of the role of reference point. If you changed jobs or locations or even considered such a change, you surely remember that the features of the new place were coded as pluses or minuses relative to where you were. You may also have noticed that disadvantages loomed larger than advantages in this evaluation. Loss aversion was at work. It is difficult to accept changes for the worse. For example, the minimal wage that unemployed workers would accept for new employment averages 90% of their previous wage, and it drops by less than 10% over a period of one year. To appreciate the power that the reference point exerts on choices, consider Albert and Ben, hedonic twins who have identical tastes and currently hold identical starting jobs with little income and little leisure time. Their current circumstances correspond to the point marked 1 in figure 11. The firm offers them two improved positions, A and B, and lets them decide who will get a raise of $10,000, position A, and who will get an extra day of paid vacation each month, position B. As they are both indifferent, they toss a coin. Albert gets the raise, Ben gets the extra leisure. Some time passes as the twins get accustomed to their positions. Now the company suggests they may switch jobs if they wish. The standard theory represented in the figure assumes that preferences are stable over time. Positions A and B are equally attractive for both twins, and they will need little or no incentive to switch. In sharp contrast, prospect theory asserts that both twins will definitely prefer to remain as they are. This preference for the status quo is a consequence of loss aversion. Let us focus on Albert. He was initially in position one on the graph, and from that reference point, he found these two alternatives equally attractive. Go to A, a raise of $10,000, or go to B, 12 extra days of vacation. Taking position A changes Albert's reference point, and when he considers switching to B, his choice has a new structure. Stay at A, no gain and no loss, or move to B, 12 extra days of vacation and a $10,000 salary cut. You just had the subjective experience of loss aversion. You could feel it. 
A salary cut of $10,000 is very bad news. Even if a gain of 12 vacation days was as impressive as a gain of $10,000, the same improvement of leisure is not sufficient to compensate for a loss of $10,000. Albert will stay at A because the disadvantage of moving outweighs the advantage. The same reasoning applies to Ben, who will also want to keep his present job because the loss of now precious leisure outweighs the benefit of the extra income. This example highlights two aspects of choice that the standard model of indifference curves does not predict. First, tastes are not fixed. They vary with the reference point. Second, the disadvantages of a change loom larger than its advantages, inducing a bias that favors the status quo. Of course, loss aversion does not imply that you never prefer to change your situation. The benefits of an opportunity may exceed even overweighted losses. Loss aversion implies only that choices are strongly biased in favor of the reference situation and generally biased to favor small rather than large changes. Conventional indifference maps and Bernoulli's representation of outcomes as states of wealth share a mistaken assumption that your utility for a state of affairs depends only on that state and is not affected by your history. Correcting that mistake has been one of the achievements of behavioral economics. The Endowment Effect The question of when an approach or a movement got its start is often difficult to answer, but the origin of what is now known as behavioral economics can be specified precisely. In the early 1970s, Richard Thaler, then a graduate student in the very conservative economics department of the University of Rochester, began having heretical thoughts. Thaler always had a sharp wit and an ironic bent, and as a student, he amused himself by collecting observations of behavior that the model of rational economic behavior could not explain. He took special pleasure in evidence of economic irrationality among his professors, and he found one that was particularly striking. Professor R., now revealed to be Richard Rosette, who went on to become the dean of the University of Chicago Graduate School of Business, was a firm believer in standard economic theory as well as a sophisticated wine lover. Thaler observed that Professor R. was very reluctant to sell a bottle from his collection even at the high price of $100 in 1975 dollars. Professor R. bought wine at auctions, but would never pay more than $35 for a bottle of that quality. At prices between $35 and $100, he would neither buy nor sell. The large gap is inconsistent with economic theory, in which the professor is expected to have a single value for the bottle. If a particular bottle is worth $50 to him, then he should be willing to sell it for any amount in excess of $50. If he did not own the bottle, he should be willing to pay any amount up to $50 for it. The just acceptable selling price and the just acceptable buying price should have been identical. But in fact, the minimum price to sell, $100, 
was much higher than the maximum buying price of $35. Owning the good appeared to increase its value. Richard Thaler found many examples of what he called the endowment effect, especially for goods that are not regularly traded. You can easily imagine yourself in a similar situation. Suppose you hold a ticket to a sold-out concert by a popular band, which you bought at the regular price of $200. You are an avid fan and would have been willing to pay up to $500 for the ticket. Now you have your ticket and you learn on the Internet that richer or more desperate fans are offering $3,000. Would you sell? If you resemble most of the audience at sold-out events, you do not sell. Your lowest selling price is above $3,000, and your maximum buying price is $500. This is an example of an endowment effect, and a believer in standard economic theory would be puzzled by it. Thaler was looking for an account that could explain puzzles of this kind. Chance intervened when Thaler met one of our former students at a conference and obtained an early draft of prospect theory. He reports that he read the manuscript with considerable excitement because he quickly realized that the loss-averse value function of prospect theory could explain the endowment effect and some other puzzles in his collection. The solution was to abandon the standard idea that Professor R. had a unique utility for the state of having a particular bottle. Prospect theory suggested that the willingness to buy or sell the bottle depends on the reference point, whether or not the professor owns the bottle now. If he owns it, he considers the pain of giving up the bottle. If he does not own it, he considers the pleasure of getting the bottle. The values were unequal because of loss aversion. Giving up a bottle of nice wine is more painful than getting an equally good bottle is pleasurable. Remember the graph of losses and gains in the previous chapter. The slope of the function is steeper in the negative domain. The response to a loss is stronger than the response to a corresponding gain. This was the explanation of the endowment effect that Thaler had been searching for. And the first application of prospect theory to an economic puzzle now appears to have been a significant milestone in the development of behavioral economics. Thaler arranged to spend a year at Stanford when he knew that Amos and I would be there. During this productive period, we learned much from each other and became friends. Seven years later, he and I had another opportunity to spend a year together and to continue the conversation between psychology and economics. The Russell Sage Foundation, which was for a long time the main sponsor of behavioral economics, gave one of its first grants to Thaler for the purpose of spending a year with me in Vancouver. During that year, we worked closely with a local economist, Jack Knetsch, with whom we shared intense interest in the endowment effect, the rules of economic fairness, and spicy Chinese food. The starting point for our investigation was that the endowment effect is not universal. If someone asks you to change a $5 bill for five singles, you hand over the five ones without any sense of loss, nor is there much loss aversion when you shop for shoes. 
The merchant who gives up the shoes in exchange for money certainly feels no loss. Indeed, the shoes that he hands over have always been, from his point of view, a cumbersome proxy for money that he was hoping to collect from some consumer. Furthermore, you probably do not experience paying the merchant as a loss, because you were effectively holding money as a proxy for the shoes you intended to buy. These cases of routine trading are not essentially different from the exchange of a $5 bill for five singles. There is no loss aversion on either side of routine commercial exchanges. What distinguishes these market transactions from Professor R's reluctance to sell his wine or the reluctance of Super Bowl ticket holders to sell even at a very high price? The distinctive feature is that both the shoes the merchant sells you and the money you spend from your budget for shoes are held for exchange. They are intended to be traded for other goods. Other goods, such as wine and Super Bowl tickets, are held for use, to be consumed or otherwise enjoyed. Your leisure time and the standard of living that your income supports are also not intended for sale or exchange. Knetsch, Thaler, and I set out to design an experiment that would highlight the contrast between goods that are held for use and for exchange. We borrowed one aspect of the design for our experiment from Vernon Smith, the founder of experimental economics, with whom I would share a Nobel Prize many years later. In this method, a limited number of tokens are distributed to the participants in a market. Any participants who own a token at the end of the experiment can redeem it for cash. The redemption values differ for different individuals to represent the fact that the goods traded in markets are more valuable to some people than to others. The same token may be worth $10 to you and $20 to me, and an exchange at any price between these values will be advantageous to both of us. Smith created vivid demonstrations of how well the basic mechanisms of supply and demand work. Individuals would make successive public offers to buy or sell a token, and others would respond publicly to the offer. Everyone watches these exchanges and sees the price at which the tokens change hands. The results are as regular as those of a demonstration in physics. As inevitably as water flows downhill, those who own a token that is of little value to them, because their redemption values are low, end up selling their token at a profit to someone who values it more. When trading ends, the tokens are in the hands of those who can get the most money for them from the experimenter. The magic of the markets has worked. Furthermore, economic theory correctly predicts both the final price at which the market will settle and the number of tokens that will change hands. If half the participants in the market were randomly assigned tokens, the theory predicts that half of the tokens will change hands. We used a variation on Smith's method for our experiment. Each session began with several rounds of trades for tokens, which perfectly replicated Smith's finding. The estimated number of trades was typically very close or identical to the amount predicted by the standard theory. The tokens, of course, had value only because they could be exchanged for the experimenter's cash, 
They have no value for use. Then we conducted a similar market for an object that we expected people to value for use, an attractive coffee mug decorated with the university insignia of wherever we were conducting the experiments. The mug was then worth about $6 and would be worth about double that amount today. Mugs were distributed randomly to half the participants. The sellers had their mug in front of them, and the buyers were invited to look at their neighbor's mug. All indicated the price at which they would trade. The buyers had to use their own money to acquire a mug. The results were dramatic. The average selling price was about double the average buying price, and the estimated number of trades was less than half of the number predicted by standard theory. The magic of the market did not work for a good that the owners expected to use. We conducted a series of experiments using variants of the same procedure, always with the same results. My favorite is one in which we added to the sellers and buyers a third group, choosers. Unlike the buyers, who had to spend their own money to acquire the good, the choosers could receive either a mug or a sum of money, and they indicated the amount of money that was as desirable as receiving the good. These were the results. Sellers, $7.12. Choosers, $3.12. Buyers, $2.87. The gap between sellers and choosers is remarkable because they actually face the same choice. If you are a seller, you can go home with either a mug or money, and if you are a chooser, you have exactly the same two options. The long-term effects of the decision are identical for the two groups. The only difference is in the emotion of the moment. The high price that sellers set reflects the reluctance to give up an object that they already own, a reluctance that can be seen in babies who hold on fiercely to a toy and show great agitation when it is taken away. Loss aversion is built into the automatic evaluations of System 1. Buyers and choosers set similar cash values, although the buyers have to pay for the mug, which is free for the choosers. This is what we would expect if buyers do not experience spending money on the mug as a loss. Evidence from brain imaging confirms the difference. Selling goods that one would normally use activates regions of the brain that are associated with disgust and pain. Buying also activates these areas, but only when the prices are perceived as too high, when you feel that a seller is taking money that exceeds the exchange value. Brain recordings also indicate that buying at especially low prices is a pleasurable event. The cash value that the sellers set on the mug is a bit more than twice as high as the value set by choosers and buyers. The ratio is very close to the loss aversion coefficient in risky choice, as we might expect if the same value function for gains and losses of money is applied to both riskless and risky decisions. A ratio of about 2 to 1 has appeared in studies of diverse economic domains, including the response of households to price changes. As economists would predict, customers tend to increase their purchases of eggs, orange juice, or fish 
when prices drop and to reduce their purchases when prices rise. However, in contrast to the predictions of economic theory, the effect of price increases, losses relative to the reference price, is about twice as large as the effect of gains. The Muggs experiment has remained the standard demonstration of the endowment effect, along with an even simpler experiment that Jack Kanetch reported at about the same time. Kanetch asked two classes to fill out a questionnaire and rewarded them with a gift that remained in front of them for the duration of the experiment. In one session, the prize was an expensive pen, in another, a bar of Swiss chocolate. At the end of the class, the experimenter showed the alternative gift and allowed everyone to trade his or her gift for another. Only about 10% of the participants opted to exchange their gift. Most of those who had received the pen stayed with the pen, and those who had received the chocolate did not budge either. Thinking Like a Trader The fundamental ideas of prospect theory are that reference points exist and that losses loom larger than corresponding gains. Observations in real markets collected over the years illustrate the power of these concepts. A study of a market for condo apartments in Boston during a downturn yielded particularly clear results. The authors of that study compared the behavior of owners of similar units who had bought their dwellings at different prices. For a rational agent, the buying price is irrelevant history. The current market value is all that matters. Not so for humans in a down market for housing. Owners who have a high reference point and thus face higher losses set a higher price on their dwelling, spend a longer time trying to sell their home, and eventually receive more money. The original demonstration of an asymmetry between selling prices and buying prices, or more convincingly between selling and choosing, was very important in the initial acceptance of the ideas of reference point and loss aversion. However, it is well understood that reference points are label, especially in unusual laboratory situations, and that the endowment effect can be eliminated by changing the reference point. No endowment effect is expected when owners view their goods as carriers of value for future exchanges, a widespread attitude in routine commerce and in financial markets. The experimental economist John List, who has studied trading at baseball card conventions, found that novice traders were reluctant to part with cards they owned, but that this reluctance eventually disappeared with trading experience. More surprisingly, List found a large effect of trading experience on the endowment effect for new goods. At a convention, List displayed a notice that invited people to take part in a short survey, for which they would be compensated with a small gift, a coffee mug, or a chocolate bar of equal value. Their gifts were assigned at random. As the volunteers were about to leave, List said to each of them, We gave you a mug or chocolate bar, but you can trade for a chocolate bar or mug instead, if you wish. In an exact replication of Jack Kanetch's earlier experiment, 
List found that only 18% of the inexperienced traders were willing to exchange their gift for another. In sharp contrast, experienced traders showed no trace of an endowment effect. 48% of them traded. At least in a market environment in which trading was the norm, they showed no reluctance to trade. Jack Kanetch also conducted experiments in which subtle manipulations made the endowment effect disappear. Participants displayed an endowment effect only if they had physical possession of the good for a while before the possibility of trading it was mentioned. Economists of the standard persuasion might be tempted to say that Kanetch had spent too much time with psychologists because his experimental manipulation showed concern for the variables that social psychologists expect to be important. Indeed, the different methodological concerns of experimental economists and psychologists have been much in evidence in the ongoing debate about the endowment effect. Veteran traders have apparently learned to ask the correct question, which is, how much do I want to have that mug, compared with other things I could have instead? This is the question that econs ask, and with this question, there is no endowment effect, because the asymmetry between the pleasure of getting and the pain of giving up is irrelevant. Recent research of the psychology of decision-making under poverty suggests that the poor are another group in which we do not expect to find the endowment effect. Being poor, in prospect theory, is living below one's reference point. There are goods that the poor need and cannot afford, so they are always in the losses. Small amounts of money that they receive are therefore perceived as a reduced loss, not as a gain. The money helps one climb a little toward the reference point, but the poor always remain on the steep limb of the value function. People who are poor think like traders, but the dynamics are quite different. Unlike traders, the poor are not indifferent to the differences between gaining and giving up. Their problem is that all their choices are between losses. Money that is spent on one good is the loss of another good that could have been purchased instead. For the poor, costs are losses. We all know people for whom spending is painful, although they are objectively quite well off. There may also be cultural differences in the attitude toward money, and especially to the spending of money on whims and minor luxuries, such as the purchase of a decorated mug. Such a difference may explain the large discrepancy between the results of the mugs study in the United States and in the UK. Buying and selling prices diverge much more in experiments conducted in samples of students of the United States, but the differences are much smaller among English students. Much remains to be learned about the endowment effect. Speaking of the endowment effect. She didn't care which of the two offices she would get, but a day after the announcement was made, she was no longer willing to trade. Endowment effect. These negotiations are going nowhere because both sides find it difficult to make concessions, even when they can get something in return. 
losses loom larger than gains. When they raised their prices, demand dried up. He just hates the idea of selling his house for less money than he paid for it. Loss aversion is at work. He is a miser and treats any dollar he spends as a loss.